This is Sound Only, a Recapables miniseries about Neon Genesis Evangelion, now streaming on Netflix. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. We're your Sound Only co-hosts, here to record our deepest, darkest, most passionate analysis about one of the greatest TV shows ever made. So we're on episode two, Micah. <laughs> we got we to got episode, to episode two. two. Lord, Woo. thank you, thank you. I, I, you know, I got home and I spread my duvet. I got on the floor and I just said a prayer. I was just like, "Thank God." Oh. <laughs> Between the two of us, you're the one with the Twitter. Account. I mean, what's the feedback? What's the, what are the streets saying? Um, the feedback is mostly that we are <laughs> that we should just settle on a pronunciation about a couple of things. <laughs> like what? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, nerve, uh, or is it a nerve? Nerve. I mean, but that's a German English. Like we're not German. Yeah, we're not German. I mean, I get I, that they're German terms. It is, and then I took German for a year, by the way. So at me, by all means, at yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, like um, the just sheer surprise at the fact that the Rigger has an anime podcast and we're hosting it. You know, surprise, uh, and also asking if we could do Cowboy Bebop next. I am, I really would like to, you know, if like if you're with it, if the people that the powers that be are with it. And then, of course, like questions about which Evangelion we're talking about on this podcast. And we are talking about the original, um, not the rebuild, not the not the movie series. The, the listener feedback has been mostly laudatory. I think I don't want to. I don't want to be. I don't want to come. I don't want to go too it, strong. Bro. Like come it's on. like I don't want to jinx it. it. You know, you asked me, and I was trying to tell you. Um, but yeah, uh, it's 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 been, and also you know, just the the standard stuff about any time that I say I'm doing something with Justin Charity, they tell you to get back on Twitter. So. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, ne- motherfuckers. <laughs> Absolutely not. I will not get in that robot. That robot is headed to oblivion. I am not going there. Uh, I asked Charity why he deleted his Twitter one time, and he just he just looked at me and he removed his Morpheus shades and he said, "Intuition." <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> because a lot of people currently are watching Ava on Netflix. One of the things I saw upon the Netflix premiere of the show. On Friday, was people complaining about Netflix basically redubbed the show in a lot of languages, with the exception, I believe, of the original Japanese. But they, instead of just using the original English voice track, they redubbed the whole show. And specifically, and there were reports of this before the show premiered, and people were very angry about it. They basically excluded all of the original English dub voice actors for the show. I mean, like, didn't even bring them in for auditions. Yeah, yes. And I actually listened to one of my favorite voice actors from the original cast, Tiffany Grant, talking about this in an interview recently. And, you know, it's 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 funny to listen to her talk about her original casting on the show. Tiffany Grant plays Asuka, who's a character that we haven't covered yet. We'll cover her in the next episode. But she talked a lot about basically demanding to be on the cast of Ava for the English dub once she saw the show as it was airing in Japan and sort of identifying it as something special and something that she wanted to be a part of. And the way she she talks about her eagerness and her, her aggression in getting cast in Ava is very consistent with the character she plays on the show. And I think that sort of speaks to why a lot of the 
there's a certain defensiveness about the original English voice cast for Evangelion that has a lot to do with those actors really feeling like they very specifically inhibit the characters they're playing. Oh, yeah. Like a, a, a very like singular, like a unique understanding of like, say, for instance, Ray as somebody that has that has like the 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 nigglings of of human emotions but doesn't really know how to express them and like being able to do that with your voice <laughs> yeah. um for an animated character i mean like is no small feat i mean is no mean feat yeah um, that said i like the netflix dub i think there there're definitely substantial differences in i think i maybe understand more so complaints that people have about the netflix ripped for the voice actors but the actual voice performances i like i think a lot of people seem to forget that i I think there are really great moments in the original english dub for ava but i think it's very uneven and i think specifically the first nine episodes of ava in the english dub have really rough voice acting i will i will stand by that critique at least like it's a it's very sort of tv cartoon voice acting where there are very heavy beats and it sometimes does not seem like characters are having continuous conversation so much as they are doing line readings. And that really doesn't get resolved until after the introduction of Asuka. But I, yeah, I think I I think that the Netflix dub is smoother and I think it changes the quality of the show in a certain way. And I get why some people are mad at it. I don't think it's prohibitive. That's my take on it. I think In of Evangelion is a totally different case, though. I think the movie is a different case, and I love the original voice acting in that movie. And so when I finally watch it on Netflix, maybe I'll be as pissed off as anyone else is. <laughs> Another thing that uh, people have been noticing about the, 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 the Netflix dub is that— so. We know we we talked about this. You've you've heard the the lead music to this show that the that Evangelion begins with this very upbeat poppy song that's still there. It's like a very shiny, bright pop song that the is cruel called angels a thesis. cruel angel's thesis. Yeah. <laughs> but the outro, despite whatever would have happened in the show, whether whether it was you know like devastating, which it usually was, there was like the calming factor of at the end, the end credits used to have a version of Fly Me to the Moon on it. It was a very calming note, but like now there's just this really morose piano music that plays at the end of it. It's Ray's theme. It's Ray's original theme that plays at the end of the episodes now, which is very sort of, again, as you say, it's morose. And uh, I think Ray's theme is one of the best musical themes in the series, but it's just such a different tone of ending the show with those those covers of Fly Me to the Moon. It's just a very different tone to end episodes on. Um, And it also does feel like part of the musical signature of the show. Like, I'll say, when I was a kid getting into Ava, I actually was so enamored with this show and so enamored with Shira Sugisu's score for the show and for the movie that I ordered all of the, the original Ava soundtracks. And I remember one of the discs has... I mean, there really were like 12 different covers of Fly Me to the Moon on them. I was like, half the disc is just Fly Me to the Moon over and over again. Um, So yeah, I think that musical signature, it is one of the stronger musical signatures in the show. Um, It is funny, though, that people are mad that it the end credits have replaced one strong musical signature from the show with 
another strong. It's like people are shitting on Ray's theme music, but Ray's theme music is beautiful. I don't know. Ray's theme is if Ray's theme is good. It's just not the like it. It doesn't massage my temples like Fly Me to the yeah, Moon does. It's not some real bossa nova hours. Yeah, <laughs> real bossa nova hours. Uh, real easy listening hours. Whomst up? Whom? <laughs> <laughs> We're already talking about the end credits. We should talk about the episode. No, we absolutely should. Last time we covered episodes one and two, right? I mean, we covered we covered the context for Ava overall, and then just sort of eased into the show by talking about the first couple episodes. Mm-hmm. Now we're gonna talk about like five episodes. We're really going for we're it. Really, we're really going to just, we, we dipped our toe. Now we're going to just get in at least up to our waist here. So we'll start with episode three, which is called a transfer. Right. So a transfer begins with an explanation of the Evangelion's five-minute battery limit um, during a target practice drill um, that uh, Shinji is in Unit 01 in this training room thing uh, and pointing and shooting at basically, you know, a computerized version of Seikyo, um with his with his semi-automatic rifle. And I mean, like, we should note that his expression is extremely glazed over. There's nothing going on behind his eyes. And he's just saying, like, you know, point and shoot. Yes, I remember. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Shinji is playing Overwatch at 2 a.m. He's, he's, playing, he's playing Overwatch at 2 a.m. I mean, like, it is extremely, like, you know, it feels like a commentary of, like, Call of Duty is training up the kids to be sent off to war or whatever. Right. But just to explain real quick there at the beginning of the episode, explaining the battery. Um, this is when we first sort of Ritsko explains the idea that like, listen, the AVA is powerful, but one of the compromises is that it uses a lot of energy. And so you have two options. You can either have the Evangelion unit plugged directly into Tokyo 3's power grid. Um, and there's this really complex network of, of plugs basically all over the city. And the Ava can trade off plugs in the middle of battle to maintain sort of continuous power supply. Or if the Ava needs to be mobile, more mobile than the, the electrical grid allows, the Ava can go to battery power, but the battery only lasts five minutes. Five um, minutes in low gain mode and like only like one minute of full operational capacity. Anyway, in Ritsuko and Masato are watching this uh, uh, from, you know, like the control room and Masato is worried about like Shinji's mental state um, or, you know, like showing concern for it, but not really wanting to show concern for it. And anyway, Ritsuko is just like, you know, I think that he might be the kind of person that just does whatever he's told to make life easier, um, which is, a again, that's another bar. Uh, um and I, I think that you were like it's it's really interesting because the conversations that Masato and Ritsuko have are essential to the character building, like Shinji's character building. And Ritsuko kind of expresses with a sharper edge, like uh, commentary on who the kind of person that Shinji is, but. Misato has more emotional intelligence. Together, they 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 do a good job of explaining the Shinji character. Right, and it, there's sort of a contrast in this episode with the very first episode of the show, right? Where um, we were talking in our previous podcast episode about the moment when 
you know, Shinji is haggling with Gendo, and meanwhile, Ritsuko and Masato are, they have different stakes in Shinji at that point. And they sort of understand that he doesn't want to do the thing he's being asked to do, that he doesn't want to pilot the Eva. But all of the adults, Gendo, Ritsuko, Masato, are aligned against Shinji. But in that first episode, you kind of get it because they're in the middle of an emergency, right? Tokyo 3 is, is being destroyed as they speak by this giant monster that's stomping around. And so it's easy to sympathize with Shinji, who's afraid, while also sympathizing with Ritsuko and Masato, who are like, well, our task is to save the world. That's sympathetic in its own way. But the conversations that Masato and Ritsuko have now are in a different context where they're just training. And so you'd think that maybe the lack of urgency would sort of give them a bit more space to be sympathetic about Shinji. You would think so, but I mean, like, still, for all intents and purposes, Shinji is a means to an end for Ritsuko. And it's that is what it is in the beginning for Masato, um, except for the fact that she grows a conscience at a quicker rate than everybody else. I'd put it this way. During the practice drill, right, there's no angel attacking Tokyo 3. There is no big, urgent, emergency that's that's sort of distracting from everyone's humanity in the moment. And I think in this moment is when you start to see the real pronounced difference between Masato and Ritsuko. Because I think Masato is very, very good at engaging with Shinji's emotional state and Shinji's reservations. And that that exists in a very stark contrast with Ritsuko, who almost always turns these conversations about Shinji into uh, a sort of zero-sum... Yeah, she makes them transactional. Yeah, exactly. She almost always says, like, you know, frankly, I don't really care. Like, I understand that this is hard for him, but that's not really important to me. Like, the thing that's important is that we have these Evangelion units. They're the only thing standing between us and humanity's destruction, and somebody has to pilot them. The end. And that's Ritsuko's outlook on a lot of this stuff. And yet, she's like a cold-hearted character, but she's also kind of easily seen as one of the sympathetic main characters that you like. And I think the tension between Ritsuko's standing among viewers of the show versus what Ritsuko is actually saying about Shinji a lot of the time, I, I think becomes one of the more interesting tensions in Ava. And we can talk more about it as we, as we go on. So Ritsuko doesn't really give a shit. I mean, Ritsuko does not care that much one way or the other about whether Shinji is is happy or whether it's fair of Nerf to be asking him to pilot the Evangelion. Masato, on the other hand, Masato, who again lives with Shinji at this point, Masato is is trying to be a quasi-parent to Shinji. And one thing Masato does... Yeah, she's trying to be like his big sister, but also his mom and kind of his friend. And it's like the dinghy is sinking and she's plugging the holes with her fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is the onset. Like, it makes sense that there's a sort of awkwardness to their relationship at this point. And that Masato is an adult. Masato is older than Shinji. But she is at a stage of life where she she shouldn't necessarily know the answers to how do you raise a 14-year-old boy. Um, but one thing she does is give Shinji a mobile phone. And she she gives him a phone knowing that Shinji, you know, when he's not piloting the Evangelion and saving the world, he goes to school. And Ray goes to school too. And 
she sort of assumes that, oh, he'll go to school, he'll have this this normal, he'll have this normal teen life and he'll have friends and he'll do stuff on the weekends. But she quickly notices that Shinji never actually uses the phone. And she she's sort of forced to conclude that Shinji hasn't actually made any friends and doesn't have any friends. He has no connections outside of, of Nerve. Until um, he does, he, well, he actually does, so on his first day, or however many days there are, there have been of him going into class, they all have these kind of, I guess they're sort of laptops, but they're like closed circuit and they can talk to each other in class. I don't know exactly what they're called. But in the in the course of the, his his homeroom class, the the teacher is explaining what Second Impact is, or at least what the history books say about Second Impact, which is that a meteor struck the South Pole, and basically the the Earth shifted off its axis. There was a bunch of geological disasters, um, a lot of you know just a chill little you know half extinction um, happened in the middle of this explanation. Uh, somebody asked Shinji whether or not they 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 heard that there was a rumor that the new pilot of the the Evangelion is in their class, and somebody asked Shinji if it was him, and he says yes, and the entire class is upended by the students fawning over him. Oh, that's so cool! New pilot, the Evangelion. Tell us all about it. And he's just kind of like, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, I do it, but yeah, sure. There's a there's a there's a knife and a and a it kind of vibrates and the thing is purple and he doesn't really know how to answer any of these questions. He's a bad celebrity. He's a very bad celebrity. He's not good at this. He's um, you know, he's not good at being a celebrity. He's not he's not great at being a teenager either, but you know, he's figuring it out as he goes along. Well, everyone in the class fawns over him except for except one. for Toji. Before class is starting, Toji is talking to his friend Kensuke Ada. Uh, remember those names? Toji is talking about how his sister was buried under rubble during the uh, during Shinji's battle with Seikyo. and that he and he is understandably very miffed about that. He would like to to beat the brakes off of um, the Evangelion pilot, you know, if he ever were to get his hands on him, and he does after class punches him in the face not once but twice. You know, he didn't exactly hand him a nap, but he put him on his ass. He he knocked him. He knocked him down. Yeah, Shinji says, "You know, like it's not like I want to pilot that thing," and this only makes Toji more upset. And he hits Shinji again. Very loud crunching sound. You get like the the, the shot is from inside of the classroom, two two floors above, <laughs> and you can clearly hear the punch. So you have these three characters: Shinji, Toji, Kensuke. So Toji punches Shinji. So that's not really a great pretext for a TV anime friendship. Uh, you have Kensuke, who is close to Toji and is sort of... Kensuke's trying to mediate this feud between Shinji and Toji, if only because Kensuke really admires Shinji. Kensuke's really into playing war, and he's really into... Like, Kensuke's the sort of kid who grows up to be really into talking about gun models. And stuff like that is how I would describe him. I mean, like, yeah, he's he he takes a, a, a very strong interest in all things military, all things yeah. armed forces. I mean, like, as the the other cl- his classmates are fawning over Shinji about piloting the Ava, he's sitting at his laptop, like visibly, like like 
the the way that the character design is is that like it's you can really like it's he is they're making a point that he is eavesdropping and writing things down like as he's talking. So from that perspective, if anything, Kinsuke probably admires Shinji more than anyone else in the class, but he's best friends with the one kid in the class who wants to beat the brakes off Shinji. So that's the core dynamic of these three boys who we will follow in these next few episodes, actually. Essentially, Toji is the Kuwabara character, where he's just kind of like the the hard-headed, like, physical presence that, like, wants to solve everything with his fist, but is actually, like, you know, kind of loving. But you don't really find that out until later. Yeah, I think hard-head is the important word to describe Toji, right? Is he really is cracking his knuckles and frowning a lot <laughs> in his interactions. With, and, and again, understandably, right? Like the character, the way he's introduced is by talking about how Shinji and Sachio put his sister in the hospital. But it just, it leads to this dynamic where Shinji is ostensibly this super-powered character who realistically doesn't want to pilot the giant robot and is also a fairly meek individual in person. And meanwhile, Toji is this very vulnerable um, like he's actually he's lost things so far in the battles with the angels and he he's gruff and he's strong and he can throw a punch. Um, but at the same time, there's a certain weakness to where a lot of his anger is coming from. It's like lashing. He and he latches on to like very like outmoded ideas of masculinity. I mean, like, you know, I demand satisfaction type shit. You know, you have Toji who resents Shinji, but then you have the rest of the school who, if anything, the rest of the school just fetishizes him in a way that th- there isn't a lot that Shinji knows what to do with that, right? Like, he's just a fetish object for all of these people who see him as a cool celebrity pilot. And not as, like, you know, just a 14-year-old boy at school. Right. And the fact that Shinji doesn't want to pilot the Ava just makes it hard for him to use that interest in him as a pretext for meaningful relationships. Because all he can think is, I, I don't even care about any of this. I don't want to pilot the giant robot. That My identity, my self-conception is not Evangelion Unit 1 pilot Shinji Akari. So after, you know, after Shinji takes it on the cheek, Ray, who also attends school, it is very quiet and also has no friends. Ray tells Shinji after he's, you know, up from the ground that like, hey, you know, there's an angel attack coming. There's an emergency. We got to get back to Nerve. So Shinji and Rei rush off from school directly to Nerve to get ready to fight the next angel, Shamshell. And one of the one of the interesting things that happens in this episode before the angel fight, which didn't happen in the first episode, is you see the whole process for which Tokyo 3, when an angel attacks, Tokyo 3, basically all the major skyscrapers retract underground. And so there, there are these long shots where you see the whole process by which the alarm goes out, the skyscrapers just start, they, they, they automatically withdraw into the Earth's crust. And then on the other side, in the geo front underground, you see all of those buildings hanging upside down. And it creates... It, sort of in those moments where Tokyo 3 is buried underground, creates this, the visually distinctive sense of, of Tokyo 3. is this, this hanging upside-down city buried beneath the earth. Right, and then uh, we see Shinji in Unit 1 getting ready to head out onto the battlefield, uh, getting ready to be launched up to the battlefield, I should say. 
And he's visibly dejected. He's just like, I don't understand why I'm doing this. My dad's not even watching me. Um, I, you know, like I'm going to go and I'm not going to save the world carefully enough and I might get punched in the face again. You know, like he's just absolutely miserable. He's in a mood this time. Like before, in the first episode, he was just mad because he didn't know what the fuck was happening. In this episode, it, it feels more like classically teenaged resistance to fighting the angel. He's just in a bad mood, especially after having gotten decked by Toji. Yeah, this is just like, you know, like, mom, where's the meatloaf type shit? It's not like a, it's not like I am trying to work through, you know, like this kind of strange, I don't know what this, this new and fantastic responsibility. I mean, like he's already done it once. He understands that at least. Um, yeah, it's not fear this time. Yeah, it's fear, not fear Like, this before time. it was so clearly fear, and this time it's just rebellion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, I don't want to... It's just like, I just want to go to my room and, like, listen to music and read comics. I don't want to do any... Like, I don't want to take out the trash. Right. Um, but uh, he is launched up to the surface, and he goes into a fugue state. Like, I mean... Kind of similar to how he began the episode, just kind of glazed over being like, I remember that I'm supposed to point and shoot. Um, goes up, and at this point, it does turn into something like fear. He's just like, if I just remember to do these two things, I'll be okay. But he jumps the gun uh, and obscures the target by firing wildly from the hip with his, with his semi-automatic rifle. And everything goes goes sideways. Everything goes pear-shaped uh, after that. So you have Shinji in a bad mood. You have Shinji opening the fight kind of sloppily. And then worse yet, you have Shinji realize, you have Shinji see that Kensuke and Toji are actually caught out on the battlefield in the middle of all of this. He, he notices while he's sitting in the cockpit. And so this creates a dilemma of just, I mean, think of the exercise in the beginning of the episode where, again, he's, he's doing the whole point and shoot, point and shoot. I don't care about any of this. And he's already fucking up in terms of his offensive strategy for beating the angel. But now he's been thrown this complication that he just doesn't, he hasn't been trained for. And he knows these people who are caught out on the battlefield. And he really just doesn't know what to do in that moment. And certainly none of the, None of the sterling adults at Nerve have taught this kid how to actually save civilians or anything like that. They're just so concerned with defeating the angels. They don't, they don't really prepare them for a whole lot of eventualities. It's just right. kind of like, we yeah. have five minutes to do this. And if you fuck it up anywhere inside those five minutes, we, don't, we aren't going to know what to do. Right. And in this moment, they don't really come up with like a great answer. Like Shinji, you know, Shinji and Masato are trying to figure out what to do about the fact that you have these two civilian kids who have broken quarantine and are just caught out on the battlefield. And yeah, they, they really struggle to arrive at the humanitarian answer of let maybe, them in the cockpit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a whole ordeal to, to get them to like, just let them just, in the cockpit. Like as in like, it is a like Ritsko talking. There's just so much conversation about chain of command and like high pressure situations where it's just kind of like, you're overstepping your authority. You don't have any right to let civilians into this top secret thing that everybody knows about anyway. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, and this is Ritsko, by the way, we yeah, should clarify that the real tension becomes, 
is between Ritsko and Masato. Yeah, uh, we yes, it is between Ritsko and Masato, and Masato is just like, shut up, I'm doing this. And uh, Shinji lets the lets Toji and Kinsuke into the cockpit. After uh, Shinji lets Kinsuke and uh, Toji into the cockpit, Masato orders him to retreat. And again, blank expression goes across Shinji's face. He begins repeating his mantra, don't run away, don't run away, I must run away, I must run away. Then he pulls out his knife and charges Shamshul. He just, that, it's like a really, it's a really sort of strangely heroic moment. But the thing uh, is that, like, I. It's I've, like ill advised. It is completely ill advised. <laughs> and the thing is that, like, I've. A, a thing that I wrote down when, like, rewatching this on the Netflix dub this past weekend is just that, like, I like the fact that the cool thing in the beginning, like, in the beginning parts of these episodes is that the, the feats of heroism are more so the things that happen outside of the Ava or just as he's getting into it, like the decision to go again, so to speak. And then like the moments that would traditionally be the moments of bravery are actually moments of near madness. Because I mean, like he pulls out the knife and charges down at, at Shamshul, like with no plan at all. And, and he does it with two civilians in his cockpit. Like, I think that's the thing Masato is trying to drive home to him too, is like, you don't know what you're doing. And also now you're endangering two people. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, can, here's where we should pause and talk about the like the 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 hallmark of anime, which is you know prolonged screaming. Usually, it's like <laughs> sounds kind of like triumphant, right? You know, yeah. like kind of guttural and like you know, hear ah! me, yeah, exactly, hear me roar type shit. It doesn't feel heroic in any way. Yeah, he sounds like he's falling off a building. Yeah, That's exactly. the kind of screaming that Shinji does. Yeah. It's just like bonsai, you know? Even as he's like, you know, he is, he gets stabbed through the abdomen and then like he jams the knife into the, into Shamshul's vital point and like, and it's just, he has seconds until the battery dies and, you know, like what happens if this doesn't work out? Um... It's not like it, it doesn't feel good when he finally kills the when he finally kills Shamshul. It doesn't feel good at all. Um, and like as the battery powers down and the cockpit goes dark, he just begins to sob. And Kinsuke and Toji don't don't really know what to do with that. Right, right. And it's like we were talking last episode about how uh, throughout the show, the Evangelion cockpit for I'd say all of the pilots is framed as this very lonely, dark, isolated, closed off place. And I, one thing about this episode is that because Kensuke and Toji are brought into the entry plug, into the cockpit with Shinji, it sort of changes the dynamic, right? Because it's it's one of the few times in the series where Shinji actually is not, he, he literally is not alone. He's got these other two people in the cockpit with him. And so the end of the fight with Shamshell feels really bizarre because Shinji won. He won the fight and he's not alone. And yet, the fight ends with the Ava running out of power and the cockpit going dark and Shinji just sobbing, just <laughs> uncontrollably sobbing. And he's got these two people who aren't his friends, admittedly, but he's got his two classmates with him. One of them being Kensuke, who's this guy who clearly admires Shinji. And they're looking over his shoulder and they don't know how to make him feel any less alone. They, they sort of can only just awkwardly watch over him as he sobs kind of inexplicably. But yeah, it's it's the it's that it's so weird that it's the fight that Shinji very quickly and unambiguously wins, and yet every 
everything about it just feels like okay, but you can't do that again. Yeah, nothing, <laughs> like, nothing don't do about that again, it. Though. <laughs> yeah, it's just like nothing about it feels good. I mean, like it's it is very it's it's a victory that feels like a defeat. And uh, after that, Shinji misses school for the next three days. And it rains. And it There's rains. A lot, of, a lot of rain. There's shots. a lot of lot of rain shots. A lot of a lot of rain shots. A lot of empty streets. A lot of a lot of you know pained looks and expressions. Toji kind of staring out of the window, just being like, ah, "I'm you know maybe you know I was too whatever." Like it's just basically he's fumbling around. To say He's trying to get rid to of say. that toxic masculinity, bro. He's trying to overcome that. <laughs> you have to keep in mind this is 1995, so it's much harder then than it is now, even to. Except for the fact that like <laughs> Kinsuke is like wild, like 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 he is like strangely emotionally mature. He's just like, yo, stop being a weirdo and go call him if you if you're worried about him. Yes, Kinsuke says, bro, you got to put that shit to the side. Just call call your man's, sort it out. <laughs> If Drake and Meek could put it behind them, you two gotta <laughs> you gotta set this aside. You know what I mean? Um, but the episode ends with this again. It's like raining and at school, and Toji is deliberating, and he finally decides that he's gonna call. He's gonna call Shinji on the phone that Masato has has previously said that no one ever calls Shinji on, just to check in on this guy who. Clearly went through a lot and has missed school for three days. But but Toji calls him and the episode cuts there. And we don't we don't know whether Shinji answered the call, but we know that for once, finally somebody has called Shinji Akari, hopefully with the intention of befriending him. So the next episode is Hedgehog's Dilemma. And Hedgehog's Dilemma does not actually let Shinji off that easily. Hedgehog's Dilemma wants to spend a little bit of time with the fact that Shinji kind of fucked up the fight against Shamshell. And it also wants to spend time with Shinji's trouble with making friends. And so instead of, instead of the episode just opening with, you know, Toji calling Shinji and Shinji being like, oh man, do you want to hang out? Instead, it's sort of the opposite of that. Hedgehog's Dilemma opens with Shinji running away from home. (laughs) Um, in, In a very like, very extensively running away from home. He doesn't just, he runs to like the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't, like, it's, like, like I mean, you like, get to it, he's like, in shit. the mountains. Like, I mean, like, as, like, he, t- like, he gets on the train and rides it to the last stop, like, you know, gets out, walks around, goes to a movie theater, and then ends up in the fucking mountains. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's such a long sequence, too. He does so many things, and it's just the fact that he ends. In the mountains, the wind blowing in his hair, there's mist everywhere, and he's looking out over Tokyo 3. And he it's not like he packed either. That's the other thing about that that's funny. It's it's sort of <laughs> he's just had, got the clothes on his back and his backpack. That's it. Right, right. At one point he sleeps, he sleeps on a bench in a lobby, right? But and he just sort of keeps going. He hasn't packed. And you're sort of you're sort of left, I feel like, um, to interpret whether the fact that he isn't actually carrying belongings with him. Whether this means that he's sort of just acting out and he intends to go back to nerve, or whether he really is trying to to create real permanent distance between himself and nerve. But in any case, he ends up in the mountains, and in the mountains he runs into Kensuke. 
actually. Kins- he keeps running into Kinsuke. He keeps running into Kinsuke. Like, like, in the middle not, of battles. Like, I mean... It, in the mountains. In the mountains. I mean, like, Kinsuke is just, like... He's in, a plant. Kinsuke is an industry plant. He's an industry plant. He's a, <laughs> Kins- Kinsuke has a million views on YouTube, and no one knows why. Yes. The, Kins- Kinsuke's like, a spy. <laughs> Uh, Kinsuke, he runs into Kinsuke, like, acting out, like, in the middle of a very, like, involved, like, war recreation type thing. He's wearing full head-to-toe fatigues, and he has, like, a, like, a little toy gun. It's, like, dusk. He's doing this at dusk, and he's alone. He's not with Toji. It's just Kinsuke, and he has, like, an action figure with him. But otherwise, he's playing war, like, in the middle of a field at the base of these mountains. Right. I, he is he is both Captain Miller and Private Ryan. <laughs> There's nobody else acting this shit out with him. But, I mean, like, so Shinji, he runs into Shinji, and they spend an evening talking together. They they make food. They sleep in a tent. Yeah, they have camp. Kensuke they have camp. has the supplies. They, they, he's got the supplies. He's got, he's got the, he's got the... What did he make? What was that that he was making? What did he cook? It doesn't matter. Did he make noodles? Something I, like I that. I think he made noodles. He got the hands. He got the, he got the, you know, he got he, the chef's he, hands. Yeah, he can burn a little bit, you know? I, li- I like to think that Kinsuke is kind of junior Masato, where he's the kid character who is perceptive about Shinji and has a level of empathy with him that someone like Toji, I think, initially struggles with. And one of the key revelations when Shinji and Kinsuke are at camp together um, because again, Shinji's posture through a lot of a lot of the early episodes is feeling really put upon and feeling like he's being asked to do a lot, and that other people don't struggle as much as he does and don't understand his struggle. And Kensuke perceives this, and they're having a conversation. At which point, Kensuke reveals to Shinji that um, his mom his mom is dead, um, and this is sort of. You know, we also know that Shinji's mom is not in the picture in the show so far, and we'll talk more about Shinji's mom later. But that's 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 Kensuke's gesture to say, you know, we live in a post-apocalyptic sci-fi premise, and you're not the only one going through it, bro. Yeah, and yeah it's just we like, can be here for each other. It's fine, you know. You were not alone. Yeah, it's very right, like a. You were not alone. Exactly. It's very. Right. It's very calming. It's very soothing. It's very wholesome. Yeah. And then at dawn, Nerev agents arrive to whisk Shinji back to Nerev headquarters. Him. Yeah, to retract him. him, to yank him back just when he thought he was getting out, just when he thought he was safe, just when he, just when he was beginning to feel something like peace, he has to go back to the Nerev facility. The Nerev agents take Shinji to an interrogation room, and we will revisit this interrogation room throughout the series, but it's basically a room with no lights in it. And there's only light in it when a character opens the door. And in this case, the character who opens the door to retrieve Shinji is Masato. And Masato is angry. Yeah, she is pissed. She's just like, so do you you feel, did you find what you were looking for out there? Doing all that foolishness? Ah, see, so you came back, you know, like, what's the, is you, is you, do you feel better now that you've, that you've run all over town? And he's just like, right. not really. Right. Um, she addresses him at you know as a kid who is having a tantrum. T- you know she address that she really inhabits the role of being a mom in that moment, and who is yelling at her kid who is having a temper tantrum. So Shinji and Masato start arguing, 
But Shinji also says, look, I'll pilot Deva again, whatever. Uh, if only because he 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 wants to protect Ray because he remembers the moment from the first episode where he refused to pilot the Eva and Gendo said, okay, well then Ray Ayanami, who's half dead and alone, will pilot the Eva and fight the angel instead. And so Shinji looks back on that and says, I can't just leave this place and make Ray do all of the work and do all of the sacrifice. Fine, I'll pilot the Eva. But the argument with Masato kind of follows from Masato not really liking that answer. Like, this is, th- it gets really fascinating in these couple of episodes because Shinji is actually trying, he's being kind of he, he's doing rebellious. What he's supp- well, he's being kind of rebellious as he's doing what he wants to do. It's kind of like where you're just, where you have a, it's, it's a basically, tube. yeah, it's the, ex- it's the exact same thing as your parents telling you to do the dishes and you're just kind of like, all right, I will either do the dishes or I will be happy, but I won't do both at the same time. Right, like, yes. And it's like, I, he is, I, I mean, like immediately after the, the battle with Samshul, which he fucked up, um, he's getting a severe dressing down by Masato in the interrogation room while he's still in his plug suit and he's talking, she's just like, you know, you can't do that again. And he's giving, you know, one word answers. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I understand. And she's just like, you can't get off the hook that easily. Like she wants him to express something like contrition and he yeah. can't do that. Cause he's just like, listen, it doesn't matter. Like there's nobody else that can do this. I'm the only one that's going to do this. So I'm going to do it. And it doesn't matter how I feel about it. And like Masato is rattled by that. He's also low key. He's also low key telling Masato, like, you don't really have anything to threaten me with. Yeah. I'm the only person. It's like in your own words, (laughs) I'm the only person who can do this. Yeah. It's just like, listen. And the thing is that, like, if I do it so badly that I die, then I die. It doesn't matter. Like, that's real teen shit. Yeah. But it's just like, it's very like, when I die, you will realize type, type, like, uh, I think Masato is also saying, look, if you if you got beef, <laughs> then like articulate it. <laughs> yes. You know, like, if you, let you it know, be known. She I, she wants him to do a better job of articulating his reservations and defending himself and yeah. sort of articulating what he would rather be doing and sort of standing up for his own interests. And so even though Shinji is technically saying, whatever, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, Masato sees that and goes, Listen, you either need to pilot the Ava and be confident in why you're piloting it, or I need you to put up a real fight here. But instead, Shinji is sort of playing the middle where he's not putting up a fight, but he's also clearly not happy. And I think that that frustrates Masato to no end in that moment. Masato just sort of rejects that attitude. Masato and Shinji are fighting. Shinji's saying he'll pilot the Eva because apparently that's what he's supposed to do. He's not going to be happy about it. And at that point, Masato says, you know what? Fuck this. You can leave. Bye. So she just, you want to keep talking about what a responsibility and a burden it is. And like, I'm doing this because these other people and I haven't really found my why then like, I don't need you. Like we can get somebody else. Whether they can actually get somebody else is a different question, but (laughs) Masato really sort of bets the farm on telling Shinji to fuck off at least right now. So Shinji leaves, you know, the nerve agents brought Shinji back to headquarters and now Masato sends the nerve agents with Shinji to pack his shit and go. 
So Shinji leaving Nerve is as much of an ordeal as Shinji getting to Nerve in the first place was. You know, there's a train ride, there's packing. Uh, there's a point where Shinji is at the curb, about to go to the train station to go back to his his proper home away from Nerve, where once again, for like the fourth time in this series already, Shinji runs into Toji and Kinsuke. Toji very just just wrecked with guilt over punching Shinji in the face for saving his life. Um, says that, you know, like, I won't feel satisfied until you punch me in the face. And Shinji obliges, um, punches Toji in the face, and, you know, like, everybody has a warm smile about it, even the nerve agents in the background. And then Shinji is carried off to the train platform, uh, except for when he turns around and, you know, just announces himself to to Toji and, and Kinsuke. It's just like, I'm not brave. I'm cowardly and dishonest. And, you know, like, I am selfish and afraid and all these other things. Just, just you know, it's it's really kind of, it's a lot. It's a lot to handle. Um, and he, the nerve agents, you know, like, carry him back to the train platform. They're just like, don't give us any more trouble. And... Uh, meanwhile, back at the, the Nerve HQ, Misato is talking to Ritsuko and noticing that she may have been a little bit hard on Shinji. So Shinji has already left Nerve at this point. Misato and Ritsuko are talking about Shinji. And Misato's realizing that the reason Shinji was mouthing off to her and the reason he sort of started to adopt this very defensive, arrogant posture toward her is, in her words, it's because it's the only way Shinji knows how to relate to others, right? She she kind of attributes to Shinji. She projects. Yeah, she projects. Yeah, it's, it's a hard project. Because yeah. it's like, in the show itself, it feels like you're meant to take that moment seriously. That, that Masato is realizing that like, oh, Shinji has trouble relating to others and that's why he mouthed off at me. But it's, you, you watch the scenes where Masato is yelling at Shinji and getting mad at him. And honestly, in those scenes, it, it feels way more like Masato is the person who is mouthing off, to use her own term, right? It feels like she's the person who, in a moment where, sh- where Shinji is trying to, to articulate this complex mix of emotions, one of those emotions being, I do want to do what I'm told because I know other, people's, other people depend on me doing what I'm told. On the other hand, I'm a teenager and you're asking me to do a lot and I wish that there were better ways for you all to help me process this. Like, what Shinji's trying to to articulate is pretty sympathetic and it's pretty sensible, especially for a 14-year-old character in his circumstance. The, the character who's really mouthing off and who's really acting kind of disproportionate to what Shinji is saying is Masato herself. Um, and I think that, that I think that projection, the level of projection that happens in that scene where Masato is like, oh, I see. He just doesn't know how to articulate himself, even though Masato herself doesn't really know how to articulate herself a lot of the time. It's one of the earliest examples of the dynamic that emerges throughout the series of the children and the adults in this show both acting childishly, <laughs> to put it nicely. <laughs> right? And, and sort of not recognizing... They, they just... It, it's really easy not to look covering at the, themselves in glory here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy to look at the show and be like, okay, there are the teen characters and there are the adult characters. But a lot of the show 
engages with the fact that the adults here are not always acting with the greatest sympathy and with the greatest emotional yeah, I mean, like, clarity. It's just like, it, it just seems as though like the show is trying to make the point that like adults are maybe more articulate and, and have like, you know, more entrenched reasons for doing things, but aren't necessarily more emotionally intelligent than the teenagers are. But in any case, I feel like Masato gives herself a lot of credit for this revelation <laughs> that that maybe Shinji is just upset and struggles to to relate to other people. Yeah, she she gives like one more she gives like one sentence like therapist diagnoses right. about and, Shinji. And then she's like, I've figured him out. And then yeah. so Masato leaves <laughs> Nerve to go to the train station in hopes of catching Shinji before he's gone for good. And sure enough. Masato arrives in her blue car, in her Renault, Renault Alpine. Alpine. Yeah. <laughs> she arrives at the train station. She arrives at the platform. And sure enough, Shinji is just waiting. And there's this this very fateful, pal- palpable sense of, yeah, realistically, these two characters knew that the other would be where they are. And they were waiting for each other. And Shinji's going to go back. Um, I don't know. Should he go back? I see at this point. I don't know. Um, <laughs> should he go back? I don't know. No, okay. And but, we, he didn't ask for a raise. I mean, he didn't ask for a ra- like no new bit. Like I mean, no. like yo, can we get a soft serve machine in here or right. like no. he doesn't? Yeah, you know, it's 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 sort of they, yeah. They both understand that it feels like in that moment because it, it's sort of defined by this long ish pause. Where they don't even where the have a silence is literally filled with cicadas. Right, right, right. <laughs> and this is following a bunch of scenes where they have very explicitly argued in very redundant terms. And Shinji just says to Masato, I'm home. And Masato says, Welcome back, Shinji. And yeah, there is this sort of re- there's there's resignation there. It's not so much a it doesn't feel I'm glad as to be warm back. Yeah. as it is just more like, you know, all right, well. I don't really have anywhere else to go, so I'm right. home, I guess. Right, because that's the thing. The show even makes it very indistinct where he's heading on the train. And and you sort of have that very strong sense watching him on the platform. It's like... It's very, like, you know, end of 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 Harry Potter, like Harry talking to, 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 to you know, spirit Dumbledore on the train tracks. He's just like, you know, there's going to be a train in a couple of minutes and, you know, like you can get on it or you can not. And he's just like, where is it going to take me? And he's just like, on. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't really matter. You're making a choice between staying and leaving, right. not like where you're actually going. In any case, um, yeah, Shinji chooses to return to Masato's apartment. So that's the end of Hedgehog's Dilemma, right? Which, which sets up and then resolves this, this uh, feud between Masato and Shinji. Again, two characters with like a really complicated relationship considering that they live together, but one of them is an adult and one of them is a teen and they live with a penguin and Masato's a bad roommate. Lots of complications there on top of the fact that Shinji is being asked to risk certain death every time he pilots <laughs> the Evangelion. But now in the next episode called Ray One, we pivot to the character who we otherwise have not spent a ton of time with. Uh, the first Evangelion pilot, Rei Ayanami. Rei Ayanami, who we not only don't spend a lot of time with until now, but who doesn't say a lot in scenes where we see her. She's she's mostly just mute. She is the pretty, mysterious girl with blue hair. And uh, red eyes. Red eyes. 
very strange. She's very, you know, she she's meant to feel kind of uncanny um, when she's on screen with characters, just because she she's not a very responsive person. And um, as much as Masato criticizes Shinji for just doing, or Ritsuko and Masato criticize Shinji for just doing whatever he's told, Ray is the extremist version of that, where Ray really does just follow orders and doesn't really articulate herself in substantial ways. Yoshiki Sadamoto, um, one of the founding members of Gay Nexus Studio that created Neon Genesis Evangelion, and he created the Ray character, like he did the character design. What he said about the Ray character design was that he wanted to lock her character in as translucent, like a shadow or the air, the kind of girl you can't touch, the girl you long for, but there is nothing about her that you can hold. Um, so yeah, I feel like that is probably a more poetic way of putting. She is just, you know, like very goth and mysterious and, you know, like there's just a constant like 10 yards of distance in between any one character and her, even when they're standing right next to each other. She's very strange. And, uh, I mean, a literal blank slate. And the show writes over that blank slate in Ray 1, right, this next episode, mm-hmm. with a flashback. So we're going back to... So in, in the current continuity, we should say, Ray's Evangelion unit, Unit 0, is, is decommissioned. Right, it's out. It's out for repairs. Let's put it like that. <laughs> so Ray One, it's in the shop. Right, right. It's in the shop. There we go. Uh, and Ray One is is explaining like why Unit Zero is damaged, and so it opens with the a flashback to a testing sequence where Unit Zero and Ray are in the test chamber, and you know Gendo and Ritsko are watching from the control room, and very quickly in the test sequence. Unit Zero sort of defies Ray's controls and breaks all of the restraints and starts wreaking havoc on the test chamber. There's a point where Unit Zero starts punching out the glass in the control room. It's almost like the it's almost like Unit Zero is is chaotically rejecting. Yeah, it's 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 like rejecting Ray like as like a a foreign agent in its system or whatever. Right, And, and and but it's also trying to like punch Gendo. It's trying to like assassinate Gendo yeah. <laughs> or, or Ritsuko in the control room. And that shot is very interesting because it's sort of Gendo does not... Everyone else in the control room is panicking as Unit Zero is going out of control. But Gendo is just doing his glassy stare of like, ah, yes, this is going poorly, I see. You know, it's, it's very... <laughs> he's not very responsive to the, the failure of this experiment with Unit Zero. Mm, I don't know about this. Well, I, Intel, we need to put some more checkpoints in place. Intel. So basically, um, you know, Ritsko is like, we got we to gotta eject the entry plug. We got to stop the experiment. We have to deactivate Unit Zero. But they're in this test chamber that has like a ceiling that's barely higher than the Ava itself. And so the, the, the entry plug ejects, hits the ceiling. It sort of drags along the wall and it hits the floor, at which point it, it's all banged up and Ray is inside of it. And that's when Gendo panics, right? And so in that moment, Gendo runs down from the control room onto the floor and he runs over to the entry plug, which is it's shown as being like scalding hot. It's got all the steam evaporating off of it. And with his bare hands, Gendo runs up to 
Um, he runs up to the door of the entry plug and it has these two handles that you have to, it's sort of like break in case of emergency that he pulls back with his bare hands, but the handles are scalding hot and you just see the two handles burning his hands as he pries the door open. He throws the door off and he stomps inside and is like, Ray, are you okay? Are you okay? And he's, he's trying to make sure that Ray is not injured. Um, and, and she's sort of banged up. Um, but Ray is fine. Uh, Gendo has freed her from the entry plug. And Gendo's glasses fall in the pool of LCL in her entry plug. And his glasses, they sort of, again, everything about the entry plug is hot. And so Gendo's glasses fall into the liquid. And they sort of shrivel up and warp. And then the glass itself cracks. And uh, that is when you get the title card. <laughs> and right. immediately after... Well, not immediately after, but I mean, later in the episode, some other stuff happens that's not as important. Ritsuko is recounting this incident to Shinji, who notices Gendo's burns. And it's kind of more so like... Yeah, there's a point where Shinji's walking behind uh, Gendo and notices that he's sort of fiddling with his hands behind his back. And he sees the scarring on Gendo's palms because it's in a moment where otherwise like Gendo a lot of the time is wearing these, these white gloves um, that feel like a very signature part of his uniform. But it, it's in this moment where uh, Shinji is able to see Gendo's burnt palms and is sort of wondering what, what happened there. And so Ritsuko telling Shinji and about this. he cannot believe that, that he, that he committed such a selfless act. Right. Um, because it's totally it just out of doesn't, character, right? it doesn't square with anything else. I mean, like if you'll recall from like the first episode where he's just kind of like, he refers to Shinji as a spare. He, you know, like is just, you know, Futsuki is just kind of, you sure you want me to go get Ray out of the, out of the infirmary? Because, you know, like she's barely got one, she's got half an eye open She's right not now. dead yet. Exactly. Yeah. And then um, that's all in contrast with the guy who runs down from the control room and almost ends up like sacrificing his hands just to open the door to get her out. Weird stuff going on. And later on in the episode, Shinji sees Gendo and Ray, you know, having a cheery, jovial conversation on the catwalk, um, which also doesn't make a whole lot of sense to him. But it's not really, it doesn't really exactly feel like regular traditional down home green eyed jealousy. It's more so Yeah, that's sort of the fascinating thing about this dynamic, in fact, I would say. Because like I think here it's important to draw on the fact that like Shinji is an only child. He doesn't have siblings. He he clearly has a very troubled relationship with his parents. You'd forgive Shinji for seeing Gendo interacting happily with Ray. Or hearing Ritsuko recount the story of how Gendo saved Rei from the entry plug. You, you forgive Shinji for, for processing all of that and thinking, why doesn't my father treat me like that? Fuck this girl. Like, fuck Rei. I don't, like, who is she? What's the big deal about her anyway? But instead, Shinji, Shinji responds to her with, with more so a sense of fascination, right? I don't think there's really that much of a hint of jealousy at all. He's just sort of, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't really get what he's looking at and he's trying to figure it out. Um, he's trying to figure out why there is this emotional outlier, why the only time he sees his father smile or can imagine his father smiling and acting passionately is when he's interacting with this strange goth teen. 
Shinji's reactions to these to these moments, to these revelations, I think can be more ably described as like seeing a dog walking upright on its hind legs and being really sad about it. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's it though. That's totally it. That is that is what it's that's what it's like though. Yeah, yeah, that's totally it. So at this point in the episode, it's established that Shinji Akari is curious about Rei and Ami. I think even earlier on, Kinsuke and Toji. They actually see Shinji at one point at school looking over at Rei and sort of wondering why why Rei is alone. And Kinsuke and Toji just assume that Shinji's staring at Rei because he's attracted to Rei. And a similar misunderstanding happens in the next scene um, now where Masato actually has Ritsuko over for dinner. And Ritsuko gives Shinji a pretext to go visit Rei's apartment. Because Ritsuko's like, oh, by the way, well, first of all, we learned that Masato is a bad cook. We learned that she should not be hosting anyone for dinner because all she knows how to make is instant noodles. And she she's somehow managed to fuck them up. Um, <laughs> and Ritsuko says, please do not invite me over to your apartment anymore unless Shinji is cooking. But <laughs> Ritsuko also says, oh, by the way, I was supposed to give Ray this security badge, this updated security badge um, earlier today. And I forgot Shinji before you come into the office tomorrow, can you go to Ray's apartment and, and give her the badge so she can come in without any problems? So that right there is your pretext for Shinji Akari to finally go, I think, properly introduce himself to Rei Ayanami. Um, it's funny because when Ritsuko gives Shinji this task, Masato makes the same innuendo of like, oh, mm, Shinji's going to go to Rei's apartment. Mm, cuties. Yeah, it's, it's very... <laughs> It's very like it's strange. The the, the whole thing is yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. D- this is after several characters have basically accused Shinji of being attracted to Ray or assumed that he is. Yes. Yeah. Um. He goes to Ray's apartment and well, he I, makes a journey. Should, he doesn't. He go, makes a journey. He makes a real it trek is, to Ray's apartment. Like, it is like Give a neighborhood way out in the yeah. guy. It's like it's in the meat. Pe- like it's like way out there. Like on the outskirts. And it is in a giant building, in a giant apartment building on the first floor. Like there's, there's just mad trash outside. She lives in New Jack City. Or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Ray and Nami, like she is in the Carter. Like what is going yeah. on with her apartment building? And it's like, it's not like there are other people in the building. So she really is like there the by lord like, and tenant she is yeah, there on like on her ones right yes. and like i mean the, the door the door's open the the door's open he walks in there's a minimal amount of natural light like just enough for you to yeah. see a literal cot with a single pillow on it yeah it looked like somebody was making like meth or crack or something <laughs> at one point I mean, and then they like, fled because the police Got, it's, you know, you know, like no, it really does look like a place where somebody like can coalesce, but not like a place that anyone lives. Yeah. It looks like the, the looks like the the safe house that Ethan Hunt finds in like the the middle <laughs> halfway through the third act of Mission Impossible in any Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, that's right. Like, safe house is is right. Yeah, they've got they've got you know, there's bandages and bloody towels and you know, like some like little wood wooden pallets to bite down on as you reset your own bones. And yeah. there's not a whole lot of other stuff. Like there's medicine. There is one sentimental affect in the apartment. Ah, yes. Gendo's warped glasses. Right. Warped cracked glasses. The stuff that he, you know, like 
a remnant of the time that he saved her life. Right. So Ray has taken those glasses that got warped and cracked and fucked up in the LCL, and she has them in her apartment. And this is one of the first things that Shinji, who has rudely just sort of invited himself into Ray's apartment, he sort of allows himself over to Ray's desk, and he picks up the glasses, and he puts them on. Um, and this is, again, he's in the apartment alone at this point, and he puts on Gendo's glasses, and he turns around. And, and mind you, like, Shinji himself doesn't wear glasses, so there's a blurring of the image that happens once he puts on Gendo's glasses. And he turns around, and he sees Ray exiting the shower with, like, a towel wrapped around her. And Ray is very slowly walking toward him. And he's clearly like just mortified because Ray is basically half naked and clearly like reacting to the fact that he is wearing his father's glasses. So Ray, who does not speak, who just moves towards Shinji, reaches towards Shinji's face to take off the glasses. And Shinji's also trying to take the glasses off. And it's this awkward moment at which point Shinji trips. And falls uh, okay. in slow mo. Can we can we note that this is not a this is not a thing that would happen? Like, yeah, this is an anime. Two thing. people yeah. in real life. Mm, like I mean, like point. it's very like yeah. the, the the way that they fall over. It's anime. Is like, this is some anime. Fall. It is it is yeah. some anime shit. But also for 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 anybody that doesn't really understand what you're talking about, from it's an extremely anime thing to happen. Like, think of any infomercial where they're trying to sell you, like, you know, a th- <laughs> like a thing that cooks a single egg, and it's just kind of like a person, like, carrying, like, a, I don't know, like a cup full of water for some reason, and they somehow end up breaking all of the dishes in the cupboard. Has this ever happened to you? <laughs> Has this ever happened to you? Yeah. Like, that is what they're, that, that this mishap is like. Right, uh, but apply to what is essentially, like, a sexual pratfall. Right, yeah. where the, the idea is like Shinji falls. He's like a clumsy, he trips over his own dick and falls on top of a naked woman in her own apartment. <laughs> and he falls in slow motion in this very like, oh my there's God. There's no reason for it to happen. It, there's, there's no, no reason, reason for it to happen, but I think that's what I like. I, God, I, one of the things I love about the show though is like, it's such an awkwardly, it's like the fact of him falling in that way on top of a naked woman is so awkwardly impractical that it's sort of, it justifies the awkwardness of the scene, right? It's in his world, it's awkward because Ray's naked, but for the viewer, it's awkward because that would never happen. And so it's two kinds of awkwardness layered on top of each other. Well, then there's also and it, just, a third it makes layer. the scene uncomfortable to watch for one. Well, it's there's just, also there's also it is yeah, it's a very uncomfortable watch uh, this scene is. But I mean, like it's also there's a third layer of awkwardness because. When he falls down on top of Ray and his his hand is on her is on her boob or whatever, yeah, he's just like, right. yo, I like I he she goes, it's not like a like Shinji is obviously like shitting himself. It takes him a second to realize his hand is on her boob. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then he then she she's just like, yo, like, can you move? Yeah, like, it's, I, it's like one of the first times Ray really says something in a very she she's really issuing an instruction and, and articulating herself in a very non-passive way is her telling Shinji, can you move? <laughs> it's so, it's such a drag, man. It's like so there's good. literally, there's no, um, like no emotion, no annoyance, no anything behind what she's saying other than like, I need to get dressed and go to work. Like, and you are in the way. Yes. Can you just move please? Yeah. 
and and the that that sense of there being no real emotional response is sort of emphasized further in the fact that even when she gets up, and again, like this awkward man, this awkward boy has fallen on top of her while she's naked, but she doesn't cover up after that. Well, she gets dressed, but she just gets dressed in front of Shinji. She barely registers his presence in the apartment, even though he, even though he has, you know, like f- done all of this shit up to this point. Like she regards like Shinji like a coffee table that she accidentally bumped her leg on while she was on the way out of the door. It's not like he's actually a pr- like he's not. It's almost like he's not even there. Well, with the exception of the fact, the one the one dedicated thing she she makes a point of doing is retrieving the glasses. And eventually putting them in a glasses case for protection from people like Shinji. Um, But yeah, it's sort of her desire to retrieve the glasses and put them away overrides all of her perception of everything else about this otherwise bizarre and awkward uh, encounter between her and Shinji. She leaves the apartment while while Shinji is in the like in the process of, you know, stammering through why he is in her apartment. And uh, then follows this awkward scene where he's just kind of following her to nerve to nerve HQ and walking like an awkward two lengths behind her yeah. the entire time. Yeah. Shinji does this with a lot of characters. He does it with Gendo. Uh, he does it with Ray. I think the only character he actually walks like a normal person with is Masato. Maybe I mean, like he even does it with Kinsuke and, and, and Toji. Yeah, it's just, he's like a sad dog. Yeah, <laughs> he really he, is. Shinji is a sad dog. I really love the way that like like uh, Ray is trying to swipe her card to go in and realizes that it doesn't work. It's like it's honestly like a Roomba bumping up against a door. Like it's not like a it's yeah. not like a thing that she really registers. Right. And then Shinji's and like, "Oh, right. The whole point of this the was whole I was supposed point to give of me this- was I was supposed to give you this card." <laughs> and then she snatches it out of his hand. Oh my god, he's getting dragged. Oh, like Shinji. Yeah. Dude, our poor Shinji. Um, but they do have a conversation on the escalator down to the the training facility. And right, this is the first time they really have a proper conversation, Shinji and Ray. And they're it kind of feels like they're making a little small talk, right? Um, but they end up talking about Gendo. Well, first of all, Ray calls Gendo Commander Ikari, right? So that's certainly more respect than Shinji. <laughs> Uses typically to refer to his father, but she says, Oh, you're Commander Akari's son, right? And she's sort of, she's talking about Gendo and she's realizing that Shinji is very worried about piloting the Ava and that he doesn't feel safe and that um, he just feels very nervous. Ray at one point explicitly asked Shinji, like, Well, he's your father. Like, don't you have faith in your father's, you know, vision? And Shinji's like, Of course. Of course I don't. What the fuck are you talking? Like, of course Shinji I don't. I have a deadbeat dad who wants me to not, die. Why? Shinji doesn't fuck with the vision at all. He does not fuck with the vision. And he starts, <laughs> in fact, uh, Shinji starts disparaging the vision. And he can only get a few words in edgewise where he's speaking pretty critically, pretty harshly about Gendo. And Ray just looks at him cockeyed and slaps him. Just slaps him across <laughs> the face. Just slaps him and then turns doesn't back Doesn't make a counter argument he just slaps him and then turns around and is like, we're done here, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so yeah, after, after Ray slaps shit out of Shinji, Ray and Shinji are heading down to put on their plug suits 
while Ray is in the the locker room of sorts, she's she's reminiscing about she's got the glasses and she's reminiscing about uh, the last unit zero reactivation test when everything went wrong and Gendo had to save her from the entry plug. And this time, Ray gets in unit zero and unit zero goes through the same sort of, I guess, boot up process that unit zero went through during the failed reactivation test. But this time, the the test is successful um, and Gendo congratulates Ray and unit zero is now back in service, able to fight alongside unit one. So now we've got two Evangelion units in the game, which is convenient because immediately after the test, an angel arrives. And I guess the best way to describe this one would be, the best way to describe Ramiel would be as a floating, gleaming cube um, that just kind of like radiates uh, random Gregorian like choir music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. I would say it looks more like it's like two pyramids glued together by their bases. Yeah, there you go. It's like two pyramids go. stacked. It is two pyramids glued together by their bases. And it is and it's blue. It's mir- very blue, right? Yeah, well, it's mirrored right. on all sides, right. right? And as it's floating through, you know, floating through Tokyo 3, uh, they deploy Unit 1 against it. And just as Shinji and Unit 1 arrive above ground, they just get their chest caved in by a particle beam. Ray 2, the next episode, Ray 2 opens with that shot of Ramiel just straight putting a hole through Unit 1's chest with Shinji Ikari screaming out in agony, being like, get me out of here. And then Masato just withdraws unit one immediately back underground and is like, oh, all right, I, we got to figure this shit out because this is clearly not going to work. Yeah, um, this one's a dud. Scrap it, tape it, move on. Scrap Next it. one. Ramio, <laughs> <laughs> Ramio is great because like Ramio, you know, with Satchel and Shamshell, which are the first two angels we see in the series, they're both, they have different designs, right? Like, you know, Satchel looks like a zoot suit, as we discussed earlier. And then Shamshell looks like the Pokemon Kabutops, basically, but with like <laughs> weird laser arms. It looks like a weird crustacean type. It's like if Godzilla were a crustacean instead of a lizard. Um, but then Ramiel comes along. And Ramiel, you know, like we discussed, Ram- Ramiel is an octagon, like a mirrored octagon that is just floating over Tokyo 3, puts a hole in Shinji's chest. And so this angel, I feel like, it's like the design of this, this angel is provocative because it, it sort of throws off your conception of what the angels are, even are and like how organic they are and how humanoid they are. Um, because this is just like Ramio comes through looking like geometry. Homie. Yeah, it's just like he's yeah he's a he's a fucking he's a Rubik's cube, and you're just kind of like oh shit, like you're just like all right, well I guess an angel can just look like anything then at this right. point. And it could also yeah, an angel could also do anything because again this this angel comes through and is basically. The sort of concept for Ramiel is Ramiel is a sniper. Yeah, Ramiel's just a, Ramiel is, can hit you from range. Yeah, is a it's he's a it's a hovering fortress that is also a long distance particle beam sniper. Ramiel gets that first shot off against Shinji, 
Masato withdraws Unit 1. And so Ramiel's like, tight. Ramiel is above ground, uncontested. And so Ramiel, at that point, starts floating over, like, the geofront, basically. Ramiel detects sort of where the geofront is in relation to Tokyo 3 above ground. And Ramiel sort of lets a drill descend from the bottom of its superstructure and basically slowly starts drilling a big-ass hole from the surface down to the geofront to attack Nerve. This episode is good in describing basically the structure of of the geofront and like also just the way that Nerve operates in, in, in high-pressure situations. So the drill makes contact with like the first plate and then... They're just like, basically, the drill is coming down and you would think that it's like, this is, oh shit, this is mission critical. But then, you know, like you cut to Masato in the in the captain's chair in the control room and they're just, she's like getting a briefing on everything. It's just like, yeah, I think they're going to try to, you know, launch a direct assault on Nerve HQ. And she's just like, oh, the arrogance. And it's, the arrogance, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it's just the like, nerve. yeah, then the, you know, like then the, uh, then, like, on the Chiron, it just shows, like, you know, status report. You know, now the drill has dropped down. It's just like, they've made contact with the 22nd plate. <laughs> and there's 22 <laughs> plates that are just, like, lining the, 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 the Earth's crust all the way down to where the geofront is. And they're just like, how long will it take if they keep, if they keep up, the, if, if, if uh, Ramiel keeps up this pace? And it's just like, yeah, they ought to, like, get close in about 14 hours. <laughs> And that's sort of the crucial difference, too. Like, Satchel and Shamshell, you know, the way that they fight, the way that they attack, it, it sort of makes them look like they're attacking Tokyo 3. They're just there to cause this generalized destruction and this general antagonism against humanity. Whereas Ramiel, because Ramiel has this drill and Ramiel has a very specific destination that's mapped out, on, on nerves monitors and all of that. Um, because you know Ramiel is headed for the geofront, you, you as the viewers suddenly have this acute sense of like, oh, the angels are trying to get to this particular place. They don't know what nerve is, maybe in the intelligence sense that you and I as the host of this podcast <laughs> do, but they, they have a sense of the humans we need to fuck up are here, yeah. underground, yeah. in this place, and we need to get there. There's a sense of it in the first two episodes where... Uh, Sekiel, towards the end of his first assault, is then attacking Nerve HQ from a long distance. And um, Futsky, I think, I think it was, uh, after the first uh, JSSDF attack on the Angel, and then, you know, like, he then begins to develop different abilities as the battle wears on. And it's just like, oh, it's learning. So it kind of feels like there's, at this point, when Ramiel shows up, it seems like they operate out of a single consciousness and they are looking for something in particular. Right. And that that, that consciousness is developing. There's an evolutionary progression that's happening from angel to angel. Masato sends Shinji to the emergency room and that's when it's like, look, we need a... Masato is like, we need a plan. Um, so first, Nerve, they, they deploy like a series of tests, right? They send up a fake balloon of Unit 1 above ground to, to sort of provoke Ramiel. And Ramiel fires another particle beam like immediately, the moment the balloon pops up. 
it destroys the decoy of Ava Unit 1. Um, they're running all these tests to see how long it's going to take Ramiel to get to the geo front. They decide they see that it's like 10 hours left. Masato seeing all of this, seeing that they have a hard time limit, and seeing that Ramiel can can basically destroy the angel the moment it enters its range. Masato is desperate, but she goes to first of all, she goes to Gendo's weird like secret lair that's away from the <laughs> command center uh, to pitch Gendo and Fuyutsuki on her plan. And she she goes to them with the sense of like, you know, y'all mind if I wild out? <laughs> she has like a, she has like a bonkers plan. Yeah, and I mean like it's a, you can see it like on her face, and she's just like, you know what, this shit is wild, but you're gonna like you're gonna like what I what I got cooked up this, here. I got a plan. This yeah, is a good like, plan. It's, and so she's just like, all right, listen, we're gonna perch on a mountain top out like outside of this this thing's range and then we're gonna try to put a bullet through its forehead and then right. she's like she's like right. a sniper rifle yeah right? yeah 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 but it's just like you know like it this thing one of the tests that they have they they trot out a uh like a a, a tank on a train they shoot a more like a long distance mortar yeah. at it and it it shifts like the phase shifting at field on it is so powerful that it's visible from like half the city away right yeah. And so it's going to take a lot of power to to pierce this shield. Um and the the plan that she's come up with has they they <laughs> Fuski and Gindo both are just like what does the magi say? And it's like an 8.7% chance of success, which is better than zero. So they're just like, "All right, well whatever. Go ahead, do your thing." And the the amount of power that it's going to take to to pierce the AT field from as with far a as sniper it, rifle with a sniper rifle from the a massive sp- sniper rifle with a giant sniper it's kind of like it's kind of like uh Kyvern just being like let's just make a really big crossbow since the smaller one isn't working <laughs> like <laughs> but it is she's just like all right well to pierce the the AT field with the positron rifle from that far away you're going to need a lot of power like. I forget ex- the exact figure, but it's, you know, it's a shit ton. And uh, she's just like, all right, we're going to get the power from Japan herself. So they just make a, they just cause a giant all night blackout across Japan to power this rifle. They do the Birdman hand rub when they announce it on TV. It's like, yeah, we, we, everybody at midnight, <laughs> flick your lighters up. <laughs> flick your lighters up because we fucking this angel up at midnight. <laughs> it's like Funk Flex is in the club, just that ladies get in free. <laughs> 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 Um, but your yeah, Masato trash. Or, your website is trash. <laughs> Masato Masato orders or Nerve orders a nationwide power blackout, with the intention being that all of the power of Japan is going to be redirected through this super elaborate energy infrastructure that they build within the ten-hour timeline to feed the entire national energy grid of Japan into. The po- the giant positron sniper rifle, which I should say, nerve is actually requisitioned from the JSS DF, the, yeah. the the standard Japanese military that nerve is always sort of distrustful of and making fun of. But that's where they get this giant sniper rifle in the first place, and they're just modifying it really to make it so that it can shoot a laser <laughs> that is basically all of all of the concentrated energy of. Of uh, an entire post-apocalyptic country. Japan, yeah, right. It's a it's 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 
It is extremely Jerry. I mean, like, it is a Rube's Goldberg machine. It's a Rube yeah. Goldberg machine attached to a sniper rifle. It also looks very, it looks like you could easily electrocute yourself touching any part of this whole jerry-rigged contraption. But then Ritsko, you know, Ritsko's contribution to the plan is like, well, um, you need a shield because Ramiel's laser is itself really dangerous. And none of this matters if if Unit 1 can't even fire off a shot in the first place because he gets tagged again and, and fucked up. So basically Ritsko requisitions a space shuttle and she basically cuts the top of a space shuttle off and and turns it into like a handheld shield. She's like, look, I just made this. I turned a, a space shuttle into a shield, um, which has like radiation like armor on it. Yeah, it's that's another thing that's like really great about this episode is because like we're talking about the the sniper rifles, Jerry Rigg. She chopped the top off of a space shuttle to make the shield. Is that? There is a very palpable sense that this is the first time that we are doing this thing and there's no way to know if we're doing it correctly. It's kind of like exactly like that scene in First Man where like Dave Scott's being strapped into the into the space shuttle for like the first the 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 maiden voyage into space and they're using a Swiss army knife to fix the seatbelt and he's just like a Swiss army knife. (laughs) A lot of the best angel battles in Ava do have that sense of Ritzko being like, well, (laughs) <laughs> just like I, I guess this is what we're doing. <laughs> um, but this is this really is the first example of that, where it's just like they know they're up against some some cruel and impossible force. They're gonna make this shit work. They're gonna make this shit work. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, they gotta make a way. They gotta make a way. But in order for this plan to work, Shinji has to get out of his hospital bed, which becomes an ordeal because Shinji. You know, like we said, he he's already been hit by Ramiel once, and he very much did not enjoy that. Um, so he's in the emergency room. He's in bed. He's recovering, and Ray visits him. And Ray brings him dinner, but more importantly, Ray uh, is there in the hospital to brief Shinji on the mission that's going to start at midnight. Um, and she's trying to give him an overview of Masato and Ritsuko's plan with the sniper rifle and the shield. And she tells Shinji that uh, Unit 0 and Unit 1 will be deployed together. And Shinji is sort of back in his... He's back in his feelings at this point in the hospital bed. He's he's He doesn't want to go out on the mission. I mean, like, it's basically, like, the, like, Kanto and Machado Part 2 is about to happen. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like he got knocked out, in, like, in four rounds. Uh, like, you know, if you're talking about Shamshul, and then he gets knocked out, like, in the third round this time when he goes up against Ramiel. It's just like, I mean, am I even gonna, like, I, it's like I could I could do without getting in this thing again, you know? I, right, and he, even though, right, and it's it's funny because Ray is, is trying to present to him a sense of, don't worry, this time we have a plan, but all Shinji can really focus on is his own exhaustion. And at one point he sort of turns the tables against Ray and he's like, listen, I get that you're stoic and unafraid. Um, but that just means that you can't understand where I'm coming from. You've never been as afraid as I am. And he, he kind of means that as an insult. He's sort of saying, you know, Ray is prohibitively cold and just sort of refuses to understand why he should be afraid of losing his life out there. And Ray, in her cold way, says, well, I mean, you could just stay in bed. I'll go do it. We already know, based on Shinji's arguments with Masato, that that's always sort of Shinji's tripwire, is 
he he'll pilot the Ava once he remembers that if he doesn't pilot the Ava, Ray is just gonna have to do it instead. Uh, and so that's the point at which Shinji is just like, I guess we're gonna fire a sniper rifle at the fucking octahedron or whatever that is. <laughs> um, it's like, all right, well, let's go, let's I go. Guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, and then uh, like he the, the 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 briefing is also like another one of the, the one of the more amazing shots in the show. It's just like they're standing in the in the hangar, everyone is backlit, the thing is very purple, <laughs> and Ritsuko is is basically running the whole plan down, and Shinji is just like, you know, but this will work, right? And and Akaki is just <laughs> like, well, in theory, <laughs> but in we've theory, never yeah. we've never actually our, tested this. According to our calculations, <laughs> she's very like that. She's that character. Yeah. According to our fucking calculation, <laughs> Ritsuko and her it's fucking like, science. It's just I said like, it before. Yo, listen, and I'll say hey, it again. man, like it's you know, listen, we've we the, the model says yes, and fuck you for asking whether or not it will actually <laughs> work. Is like her entire posture. But but also at the end of her briefing is when she makes clear that Shinji is the one, you know, Shinji, who a moment ago seemed like he might flake out of the mission. Shinji is going to be the sniper. So this is going to fall on him. He's the one who's going to have to to fire the sniper rifle. And the important part of Ritsuko's briefing, too, is that apart from how complex the energy supply of the sniper rifle is, it, the it's sort of like an actual, it is right, also, it's sort of like an actual sniper rifle where it's like, he really needs a crash course in trigonometry to know how to fire this thing because you have to correct for in addition to like the long the usual shit about like the about like a long distance sniper shot where you have to correct for like wind and like the curvature of the earth and the all these other things then you also have to deal with the unpredictability of electromagnetic forces right and it's just like she's just like listen this could go anywhere so right. you kind of kind of and you're only gonna really have one shot uh so that is the main complication it's a really powerful rifle but it's it's surprisingly difficult to use uh and shinji's gonna have to fire it and ray will be going out with him in unit zero and ray is basically gonna be his support ray is gonna have the shield ray is gonna have to figure out what to do to cover Shinji if something goes wrong. And Shinji and Rei, they get ready for the mission. And they try, I mean, again, it's, they, they speak such different languages, Shinji and Rei. Um, but there's a moment when they are waiting for the countdown to the operation begins, like when the, the blackout is in full effect. And they're, they're sitting on the, the hulls of their Ava units. It almost feels and- as though in this moment that like Shinji, well, yeah, the Shinji's trying to reach out and like, you know, forge some kind of final connect. Like this could be our last night in this world type of thing. There's a really palpable sense of like, man, we could really fail. (laughs) It's like for all the planning that's going into this mission, it, the stakes actually seem much higher and the, the margin for failure seems much more daunting. And yeah, it's it's these episodes all mark a peak in Shinji's curiosity about Rei. And I think despite the difference in how Gendo regards Rei versus how Gendo regards his own son, Shinji really does have this very good faith approach to Rei where he's just trying to understand why she seems so distant and strange and why she seems to, like in a way, he's almost in awe of it, right? He kind of wishes he could be as fearless as Rei is. Um, and so all of his conversations with Ray and this whole arc 
seem to be oriented around Shinji trying to discover sort of what he's missing that Ray has. There's this one moment where Shinji, you know, once again is is praising he, he sort of alternates between praising Ray and being mad at her. And in one moment where he's he's in awe of her, he says, you know, you're a lot tougher than I am. And Ray just sort of shoots back to him, I'm not. I just have nothing else. And that's that's sort of the fundamental dynamic there is that Shinji sees a lot to admire in Ray, and, and Ray keeps trying to tell him that, like, no, the the sort of the core of my steely resolve is just that I don't think anything matters and that my life isn't particularly valuable. And that I'm only I'm only as valuable as my ultimate contribution to this mission and all these missions is. Yeah. Um, And it also just feels like contrast is like, you know, Shinji being like, well, yeah, well, getting to the place of of trying to convince himself that nothing matters, but still can't get rid of the can't shake the feeling of, you know, like, but validation would still be nice. And uh, Kinsuke, you know, again, is up to his 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 machinations and tells Toji that he has hacked into his father's computer and knows the location of where the Avas are being launched. So he takes a group of the school children there to see it happen. And uh, they cheer Shinji and Rei on as they, as they march out to their rally point. And a thing that I really noticed about this part is that you can hear the kids cheering and you see the Avas marching. You can hear them plodding forward. But, like, there's no music. Like, there's no score to to tell you whether or not you should be optimistic about what's about to happen. And it's sort of beyond the fact that they have admirers watching them um, just for the fact that they're Evangelion units and they know the pilots and this is a huge heroic, you know, they're trekking out to save Japan. You know, the moment before that, it seems like Shinji might flake out of the mission. And so the real sort of triumph of the shot where Unit Zero is deployed above ground and then Unit One is deployed above ground is that Shinji committed, right? It's this moment where it's like, okay, he didn't run away. All right, let's go. Let's, <laughs> let's get to business. Let's go to town. Um, I also want to say to the point about Kinsuke hacking his father's computer Nerve, you know, Nerve is a very secretive organization, and yet it is an organization that feels like it has really bad operational security. <laughs> um, <laughs> Incredibly, a fourteen-year-old hacked into the main. Yeah. Like, he literally hacked like, the mainframe. <laughs> but it's also like throughout the show, like Kinsuke and Toji just show up to Masato's apartment. It just feels like there's a lot of <laughs> leaks. Like, yeah. kids who are able to just waltz into Nerve and like know where these robots are going to be at all times um but that's sort of beside the point it just feels like yeah just like a like a random school field trip from dc right. and like you know two of the kids just continually break off and just keep showing up at langley at lunchtime yeah exactly <laughs> yes yes that is exactly it it's like <laughs> kensuke just keeps popping up in like the cia cafeterias or something <laughs> y'all got froyo uh, yeah froyo what's the video today Midnight falls. The power goes out. Uh, all of the the trucks, all of the like, all of the 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 electrical grid channels its energy to this sniper rifle. You've got Shinji in position. You've got Ray in position. You've got Ramiel like all the way across the city. 
still drilling down, about to penetrate the geo front. And Reitz goes like, let's go. I mean, you only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow this opportunity, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. It's that moment. Would you it's grab one it? shot. Or would you let it slip? <laughs> would you let it slip? <laughs> uh, but yeah, Shinji fires a shot. Surprisingly, Ramio wakes up and fires his own particle beam shot. And the two shots collide in midair in the middle of the city. And they, they sort of freeze and warp around each other and then past each other. They continue off into their original directions, but their aim is off. And they land sort of askew of their targets and they explode. And it's just a giant dramatic explosion on both ends. Um, you know, like all the other explosions in the show, it's cross-shaped. Right. Yes. <laughs> There's a big crucifix explosion on both ends, but neither target is destroyed. And in fact, the the Ramiel shot didn't even hit. Whereas like there's a bit of uh wreckage on Shinji and Ray's end. And what's clear at this point is okay, unit one missed. What happens now? So they've missed. And at that moment, Ramiel breaches the geo front and uh they begin loading up the hastily loading up the positron rifle for a second shot. And Ramiel begins powering up his second shot. And everything is really going to pot here. And uh, when Ramiel lets it ring off, and Shinji is pretty sure that he's going to die because he doesn't have a lock on him yet, uh, in steps Ray with the shield. And there's a... Basically, throughout the episode, there are a lot of explicatory monologues about how this stuff works. Um, and the shield, Ritsko explains to um, another operations person, uh, can withstand at this distance uh, Ramiel's particle beam for about 17 seconds. So there's a very really nervy countdown as this is happening and as Shinji tries to lock onto Ramiel across the city uh, for the second shot. And... The beam, Ramiel's particle beam is eating through the shield. Um, Ray is, you know, still with the steel resolve, just like, you know, whatever. This is, this is how, if this is how I go out, this is how I go out. She's holding the shield, trying not to get hit in the chest like Shinji Akari did earlier. <laughs> yeah, trying not to be a punk. And uh, uh, Shinji manages to, at the very last possible second, like after the beam is eaten through Ray's shield and is going into the chest plate and it's everything is about to, you know, all, all is about to be lost. And Shinji gets the lock, shoots the beam, kills Ramiel or destroys it, whichever, whatever works for you. It goes clean. It goes, goes clean. clean. It goes clean through. Clean through. Clean through. Punches directly through Ramiel. Um, and... They win. Um, of course, like the drama is not over because uh, Ray's Ava is out of commission, not moving, melted through, and Shinji, in a uh, in a recreation of the um, the preseason flashback at the beginning of Ray One, um, pries open Ray's entry plug with his with his with his own hands and uh, sticks his head in, <laughs> and it's a very like. Hmm. 
how to how, how to describe this scene. Yeah, first, we should clarify that like Shinji is wearing a plug suit, so it's not exact. It's, it's the not main the exact difference. Same. Is, he doesn't burn his hands off yeah, like yeah, yeah, Gendo yeah. does because um, he's wearing his plug suit. But otherwise, yeah, he it's it's clearly recalling that moment with Gendo. Shinji breaks into Ray's entry plug, and sort of unlike Gendo, Shinji once he he gets through to Ray. He is just like, are you okay? You know what I mean? Yeah. He's very like... He's, he's like, I mean, is crying before the hatch is open, right? Yeah, it's some Jimmy Stewart shit. He's just like, oh my God, are you okay? Oh, I he's thought very I was never going to see you again. Right, yeah. right. And he's also just mad because he, he's thinking back on a lot of Ray's conversations leading up to the mission where Ray just seems very fatalistic. And sort of like, well, if we die, we die. Each and time that they part, she says she doesn't say bye or see you later. It's farewell right. every time. And Shinji, in those moments, never really knows how to answer that or how to sort of get Ray to elaborate on why she's so fatalistic about everything. And it's it's like in that celebratory moment, in that denouement after they've they've beaten Ramiel, and right after he's broken into Ray's entry plug. Shinji is finally like, oh my God, can you just from now on not be so, (laughs) (laughs) so dismal and fatalistic? Like we survived and, you know, I'm just happy to see you again. Can you like, just give me a smile or something? I mean, like what, you know. And and it's weird because it's also the first moment where Rey herself is very, um, she's very apologetic in that moment. She's sort of like. I don't really know what to do with all all this stuff that you're throwing at me right now. And I don't mean to be the way that I am, but I am the way I am. And Shinji, I mean, Shinji and, and, I mean, arguably tells a woman to smile, which yeah, is problematic. You know, that's but problematic. he does in that you, moment you, say. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, like a smile for, would be nice for a change. And it's just kind of, all right, man. Like, yeah, you know, tap know. the brakes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so they have this moment where Shinji is once again crying in an entry plug, I want to say. But um, <laughs> but is it in it? But it's a strange moment because they've beaten Ramiel. Shinji breaks into Ray's entry plug and is is just sort of ecstatic. And Ray is apologetic because I think in that moment she recognizes how how nervous she's helped make Shinji. And you know, Shinji tells Ray like to smile, basically. But the weird thing about that moment is that even though these two characters in the course of these episodes have earned this sort of newfound sense of camaraderie, in a way, right? Like Ray has earned the right to smile. She only smiles in that moment after once again sort of recalling Gendo's face in place of Shinji's face. And so it it doesn't even necessarily feel like Rei is smiling at Shinji so much as she's smiling at Gendo Akari's son. And it becomes a complicated... It, it, it's like a happy note to end the episode on. But it doesn't feel it's right. Complicated, again, yeah. It, again, it's off. again, it's a victory that doesn't feel like one. Which the show again and again offers the viewer, and it's good. Um, <laughs> the next episode, a human work, is some silly shit. It's not nearly as like I know we we very meticulously explain the events of the past few episodes of Ava because they're very like you know, they feel like crisis episodes in a lot of ways, like Shinji running away from home, Shinji finally engaging with 
with Ray. Yeah. A human work this, feels like a bottle episode. It does. Or you know what? It it actually feels like a field trip in a way. Yeah, there That's you how go. I described this episode. There you go. The episode opens with Gendo up to some shady shit. He's on the phone with some sort of spy. Um, and they're talking about the Japanese government. And they're talking, talking about, about favors. Yeah, there's favors. There's all sorts of subterfuge and sabotage and uh, some, it's some Quiet real, like, words and dark corners, you know. Yeah, that it's kind the of stuff shit. Alex Jones talks about. You know, it's all that shit. Um, You're an intellectual they, dumbass and I'm coming for you. <laughs> coming for you. Um, and they, they refer once again to the Human Enhancement Project, which I think is actually labeled uh, officially labeled in this episode as the Human Instrumentality Project. Again, it's not explained what it is, but that's one of the subjects that Gendo is speaking with this person on the phone about. Um, it's in Gendo later meets this this spy person on a plane where they have more conversations about shady this, international affairs. Yeah, talk about what the spy guy is drinking. By the way, wait, what is he drinking? He's drinking he, like he's just swigging out of like it looks like a little fifth of like it looks like a. He's swinging out of out of one of those. Oh, he's drinking joints the, the whiskey. Yeah, yeah, well, drinking, oh, yeah he's, but it looks like E and J. That's the thing. It's oh, like it's, that's what the bottle looks like. I think it's yeah. like Nico he's, whiskey, but he's drinking E and J, which is like a hilarious thing to think about. Yeah, man. Listen, this. Hey, man. Times, you know, it's, it's, it's times, the end times. You know, like we could all them, die. Like civilization could Seven Elevens. Yeah, it's just like you know what? Let's just get rift on this plane, huh? Yes. But meanwhile, while Gendo is up to his shady shit, there's a cut to Shinji and Masato in the apartment having breakfast. <laughs> and they're having breakfast like two, like for once, they're eating a meal like two normal, decently adjusted roommates. And having those, uh, having the conversations that roommates might have over breakfast, like, yo, man, like your shit is a mess. Your towels are yeah. all on the floor. It was your turn to make breakfast this morning. Yeah, like, and like Shinji's wearing an apron. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing dishes. Like they really play up the sitcom nature of this. That finally, after all of the trauma and yelling at each other, that Shinji and Masato, again, they don't have a perfect relationship, but at least now they have a conventional relationship. And yeah, Masato even lets Shinji boss her around the house, right? Like Masato lets Shinji play the uptight roommate, whereas Masato is just sloppy and, you know, all over the place. Masato and Shinji have breakfast. You know, this is very much, it's a work day. So Shinji heads off. To, well, no, actually Shinji heads off to school. Masato's about to head off to work. There's an interesting moment once Shinji leaves the apartment for school. At, you know, because they, they're playing this happy-go-lucky roommates in the apartment, getting ready for, for school and work. It's very carefree. It's very sitcom-y. But the moment Shinji leaves the apartment, Masato kind of, she seems like she's dropping an act and she gets on the phone and she calls the nerve security and she's like, hey, you know, Shinji just left for the day, put a tail on him. Um, and you can, there's sort of the anxiety of, is Shinji going to run away again? You can tell that Masato still has her very like job oriented concerns about uh, Shinji's commitment to piloting the Ava. And to some degree, her persona as Shinji's roommate is kind of an act Right. Or she's still right. she's still got this level of of emotional distance um, from Shinji yeah. that her job requires her to have. But also like on that same 
Like, immediately after she hangs up the phone saying that, you know, like, put a tail on Shinji, she notes, like, oh, sarcasm. Seems like he's finally, like, loosening up. Like, because he was, because of something he said at breakfast, he was just like, you know, oh, it's no worry. It's no wonder that you're not married at your age. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I was just like, damn, he's just like coming and like, he's just, you know, just lopping people off at the knees now. Yeah. Huh? Masato you, thought he was putting bass in his voice before, but he does yeah. not really put bass in his voice with Masato until he starts dragging her romantic life. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's real shit. Also, again, it's like, you live like this? Like, this is he's like, damn, you live like this? <laughs> Um, so if you'll remember in the episode of Transfer where we first meet uh, Toji and Kinsuke, um, there's a scene where the teacher in the homeroom class is talking to the class and talking to the viewer, really, for the first time about Second Impact. And Second Impact is a crucial event in the story of Evangelion. It is a cataclysmic event that the teacher describes as being the result of a uh, meteor impact at the South Pole. And Ritsko, in this moment, in this episode, Ritsko says, well, actually, you know, that's, a, that's the public narrative of what Second Impact is. And Ritsko says, when, in reality, she's talking to Masato and Shinji, and she says, in reality, Second Impact is caused by the angels. And we learn more specifically about what Second Impact is later, but Ritsko establishes in a human work that second impact is uh, was was an event related to the angels, and that part of what Nerve is doing by fighting the angels now is trying to avert uh, a, another catastrophe called third impact, which we will also learn more about as the series progresses. But for now, Masato and Ritsuko have to take a work trip um, to what they call Old Tokyo, which is the original actual Tokyo. Um, which is not a super fortified mega city with underground retraction capability. It's just Tokyo, um, but sort of depopulated. And Masato and Ritsuko are going there for a conference hosted by this company called Jet Alone. And Jet Alone is some Elon Musk shit. Like it's some real Silicon Valley. Like Jet Alone is trying to develop yeah, an alternative <laughs> to the Evangelion. <laughs> Jet alone is independent space travel. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. And they're they're building these janky, bulky-ass alternatives to the Evangelion units. And the main differences they're, they're, they're positing for why the Jet Alone, um, the Jet Alone units are preferable to the Evangelion units in fighting the angels is, one, because they are automated, right? They don't require, like, human pilots and they certainly don't require teenagers to pilot them and two because they have nu onboard nuclear reactors right which is meant to solve the AVA design problem of the Evangelion units having five minute batteries or otherwise requiring to be plugged into electrical outlets above ground the, the jet alone robot just runs on a nuclear reactor on board which, which you know I feel like people are watching Chernobyl now right yeah. I feel like the obvious shortcomings of this design principle might be really obvious, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, uh, this, these are these are points that Ritsuko uh, raises during a... Yo, Ritsuko really turns really up. really turns up during a Q&A session when they are talking about, well, doing the Jet Alone exhibition, the first half of it. There's a, yeah, it's an exposition in, like, a conference hall. And yeah, so it, when we say Q&A, this is at a public event where you have this representative from the Jet Alone company 
fielding questions and the, and the representative recognizes you're like, oh, you're the acclaimed engineer, Ritsuko Akagi. Yeah, but like, but to set the scene a little bit, like this is happening in a giant like concert hall, but they make a point of having a wide shot of the whole hall and the, the way that like all the people are congregated and in the center of it is Ritsuko and Masato alone at a, at a big, you know, dining table just by themselves in a sea of people. Yes. Um, so you get the sense that nobody really wants to talk to anybody from Nerve. Like, you know, they're kind of the the, the black sheep, so to speak. Um, yes. But Ritsuko just lights into this guy about his stupid jet alone design and being like, you know, maybe... Stupid fucking robot with your stupid (laughs) nuclear reactor. Dumb men. Yeah, it's just like you... Like, the thing is, he's just like, yeah, well, you know, it feels to me that (laughs) having a robot with a giant nuclear reactor in in its core and sending it out into the field to do close quarters combat is... Like kind of dumb. <laughs> I mean, like correct but, me if but, I'm wrong here. But the here. guy Let fights me... back. The guy is like, okay, but why you got Evangelion units on iPod batteries though? You yeah. know, he's like, he's just like, yo, yeah, like you got a, you know, you, <laughs> you got Ava's on iPod batteries, and you know, you're using fourteen year olds, and like he basically castigates uh, Ritsko for not saving the world carefully enough. Right, right. They're um, roasting each other, though. They yeah. light each other up. It's pretty. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's a great moment for Ritsko. It um, really is. <laughs> um, so Ritsko and the Jet Alone representative have this this public blow up at the Q and Q and A session, and the Q and A session is followed by the actual sort of like test demonstration of Jet Alone. It's supposed to be this triumphant moment where the Jet Alone company proves that their design works. Um, and it's supposed to be the jet alone robot taking its first big public steps to prove that, uh, it can function at the same scale as the Evangelion units. Um, but just keep in mind, the jet alone robot looks so dumb. Like the Ava, the Ava units are really sleek and they're really humanoid and they're very agile. There's a lot of agility in the Ava designs. The jet alone robot looks like a wabufe. Like it looks, <laughs> it just—it's too round, man. It looks it's too like, round. It, it looks, looks like a bowling pin turned upside down. T- like it's basically like it looks like it looks like the robot from Big Hero Six. You know, like it's too—it's too cuddly. It's too goofy looking and round. It's, but even the things and, like. You know how, like, uh, Inspector Gadget, when Inspector Gadget extends his arms, they're just sort of coils. They don't really have any muscular definition to them. They're just coils. That's the kind of design of Jet Alone. Everything about it looks very non-muscular. It's just yeah. bulk and no muscle. It's just No it, swagger. No swagger. Like, his, his shoes are... Zoom, zoom out. Let me get his shoe list so I can roast his shoes. Zoom, yeah. His shoes just, like, cooked. You know? It's just... Negative. This this the jet alone robot is pulling no ladies at the club. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. It's a it's a design disaster. But uh, it's it's yeah. It's just like your your friend over in the corner that you're trying to get somebody to talk to. Right. The jet alone robot is the Shinji Akari of robots in a way. <laughs> in, a, in a sense. In a sense. Oh, right. Man. Um. But anyway, it, so there's this ex there's this exhibition with the jet alone robot. It's it's outside on a on a runway, 
And uh, Masato and Ritsuko and all the people at the conference, they're sitting in a control center. And the way this is framed is actually quite similar to, I mean, you know, it's foreshadowing as they call it. But uh, musically and visually, even though they're in a different space and the control room in this case is very huge because it's meant to house a lot of people all watching this exhibition. It, it looks more like like a larger press box at an actual, like at a stadium or something. The The music and the way that it's all shot recalls the failed activation test of Unit Zero uh, a couple episodes ago. It's framed in a similar way where it's like, all right, there's this, we, there's an activation sequence about to happen and we don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, so the jet alone representative activates the jet alone robot and the jet alone robot starts walking. It has this very like awkward hunched looking, non-intimidating walk. And the jet alone robot is walking toward the control center and everyone's looking from the window and the jet alone representative or the jet alone team orders the robot to halt. And it can't halt. They find out that the robot cannot stop walking. And it's just walking in a straight line toward the control center until it gets to the control center. And then it stomps right through the control center. Uh, stomps entirely through the building. Everybody has to dodge out of the way. It shatters all the, the glass. It caves the ceiling in. So the jet alone robot keeps stomping down the runway. And the jet alone team quickly reports that not only is the jet alone robot not going to stop walking, but it's actually suffering an imminent core meltdown. Uh, its nuclear core is is going to collapse and explode, and that is going to be very bad considering that this demonstration is happening in old Tokyo. Uh, so now we have to figure out how to stop the jet alone robot from killing everyone. Right, so Misato, ever the ever the Type A in these in these high pressure situations, is just like you know what I got a plan. Um, I'm going to get one of I'm going to get Unit One over here. I'm going to airdrop in there with Unit One in the stealth bomber. Yeah, in the, the, the stealth bomber, that, the aircraft that drops, the aircraft that delivers Unit One to old Tokyo. Is that some fly shit? They should it use those. Really I mean, they do like, later in the series, yeah. them, but it's a cold ass. It's airplane. a real cold <laughs> entrance that 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 Ava One makes. I mean, yeah. so so anyway, <clears throat> one of the technicians from Nerve Huga is is flying the 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 plane with Unit One attached to it in, and Shinji and Masato are on the plane together, and Masato's like, "Yeah, we're 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 deploying together this time," and you're like, "How is this going to work?" So basically, Shinji is going to pilot unit one as as always and Masato is going to attach herself to unit one and the goal here is going to be to send to send Shinji down the runway to basically grab (laughs) grab on to Jet Alone and hold him in place yeah Jet Alone is at this like I mean it is I don't think we've done an adequate job of explaining the way that it moves because it is like it's Olympic power walking but moving Like at top land speed at the same time. The form looks really ridiculous, but yeah. it's moving. <laughs> yeah, it's like bad posture, but right. Yeah. It's yeah. 
And so the plan is for them to deploy together, for Shinji to run up alongside it, for Masato to get inside and shut the computer down, uh, shut shut Jetalode down from the inside using the computer and this one password that uh, wipes basically everything and powers it down. And we should say the password is hope. The Jetalone, yeah. it's this whole ordeal where Masato is trying to get the Jetalone representative to give he- to give her the password to shut down the nuclear reactor. And thank, you know, mercifully, it's just a four-letter word. It's hope. Yeah. Uh, um, which I mean, like, is, is you know, like, let's, to continue roasting the Jetalone Corporation or whatever, uh, that's like putting password as your password, but whatever. Anyway. Um, it, also, in the scene where there's a, there's a, there's a big shot um, as the sun is setting and Unit 1 is sprinting behind the Jet Alone thing, and you just realize just how corny the Jet Alone robot really is. What can it do? I don't even get there's what it can a, I, do. Like, they, I don't they, know what the point of, like, I mean... It looks lame. It how, looks awful. Can, Fuck that like, robot. Like, all that thing can do is get up close to an angel and grab it and then self-detonate. Yeah, that's, that's it. The that's the thing. That's the thing. Ritsuko was too busy roasting it the way I would with being like, this shit looks trash. But I, I just would, I would petition for, for an explanation of, what do they expect the Jet Alone robot to do functionally other than just walk around awkwardly? That shit can't fight. That is not a robot that can fight. You, can, No one can fight using that robot. I mean, like, it would be, like, it's, like, the Jet Alone would be useful for, like, maybe clean up after the battle is over. Like, you can move some some steel beams and, like, you know, pick through rubble. That There's robot nothing would else. be helpful for pulling the largest conceivable bobsled. That is what you <laughs> could do with that robot. You cannot do anything else with that robot. <laughs> what are you going to uh, do with it? Anyway. All right. Anyway. You can launch ships with it, I guess. I don't know, man. Masato you- gets on a damn robot. She gets on and she gets inside the reactor core and she's fucking around with the computer. And she's using, she's, she's got a password and she types in the password to shut down the reactor and it doesn't work. And she's like, let me type this shit again. Is it a capital letter situation? Is it, is it, is the O lowercase, but the rest of the letters are capital? Like what? And then she just supposed to be a three. Right, right. And she, she's just like, this shit does not work, man. Like what? What's going on here? And so Masato, in this moment of desperation, uh, again, because the, the core is overloading, and now she's inside the nuclear robot that's about to Chernobyl on everybody. And so she very desperately just sort of throws her shoulder against the, the rods inside of the reactor, and she's trying to push them in. <laughs> It looks, it's very, it's like a very like you, pathetic scene where it's like, yeah. I don't even know if this is how the you science can't even of nuclear reaction one, works. Yeah, it's just like, you can't, like, and throws her shoulder against a single rod, and there's of the like nine, 20 it's like nine there, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, right, on one side, there's nine. Yeah, there's one, like, on one side of those nine, and then you got to go to the other side. Like, I mean, right. and it's just like, there's no way that this can work manually. But she does it for long enough, and there's sort of a countdown going on back at the control center. And at the very last minute, in true anime crisis fashion, all of the rods push in and uh, go green and the robot stops and everything seems to cool down and they seem to have the jet alone robot under control. 
Shinji, meanwhile, inside Unit 1 is just kind of like, you know, oh, yeah, damn, we did it. Yeah. Teamwork. Family. Yes. They're all and, doing the anime. We did it. Yeah. And uh, Masato is just like, is, is just sitting down, like, breathlessly thinking. Just like, damn, they... You know, like I feel like I got played, man. I, I feel like I got got. <laughs> it's just like who you, who you saying that to you? Mm, they got you. She's like, yeah. So she's sitting down in front of the reactor. She's just like, yeah, it was a miracle. A miracle that rubs chin pensively was meant to happen. Yeah, yeah. And so we cut to a scene with Ritsko and Gendo, and they're in again. They're in. Gendo's secret lair. We'll talk about Gendo's office one day. It's, Gendo's office, okay, we'll talk about it now. Gendo, Gendo, when he's not in the, the sort of command center, he has an office. He has like a personal office space. And the office just has a desk. And there's no chairs other than his own chair. And there's no lights in there. There's some natural light in the, there's like a long window with natural light, but there's no actual light fixtures. There's no furniture. You played it, the Spider-Man. You played the Spider-Man game on PS. The one that came. The one yeah. that just came out. It looks like Kingpin's like penthouse yeah, office. You're thing. right, but it's that. But, it's a it's a penthouse office setup, but it's nothing in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it mean, almost, like where it's just kind of like the one that in in the, the one that Kingpin has is just kind of like very obviously designed by somebody who is a cocaine enthusiast. Yeah, this one is yeah. just like I am. Like it's it's just very like minimal. Like I I am building something to represent my mind, and you are intruding in it. Right. Like, yes, that's yeah. exactly it. And it's also evocative of Ray's in in a very different way, uh, in a much more pretentious way. It also feels a little evocative of Ray's bedroom, which has the similar setup of not having like real furniture and not having much sentimentality to it. Gendo has that vibe going in a much darker, more foreboding sense that. Uh, like you said, it is sort of, it feels like an intellectual flex on his part to be like, in order to meet with me, you have to stand like 30 meters away from my desk and you can't sit down. <laughs> and you just, you have to address me and hope that I hear the echo of your voice across this entire room. <laughs> um, but Ritsuko meets with, with Gendo and she's like, woo, uh, you know. Masato almost fucked that up. Our plan to sabotage the Jet Alone robot. Like, Ritsuko basically immediately, <laughs> instead of talking to Gendo about, like, their plan to, to sabotage the Jet Alone robot went according to plan, even though Masato interfered. Um, and you, you learn that, you know, as Masato herself seems to suspect, that the whole thing was a work, that the reactor ultimately would have shut down even if, uh, she and Shinji hadn't interfered and that the whole point of the the staged Jet Alone meltdown was to disgrace the Jet Alone Corporation and make their robot look like a dumbass. You know, on, on which front they succeeded. Uh, Even it already looked like a dumbass. It already looked like a dumbass. This episode is interesting because it feels very cartoony to me. It feels very... Um, like, this is just the most cartoony ass, like, aha, so Ritsuko and Gendo are behind it all along. But also, like, the Jet Alone Corporation is never going to come up again, ever again in this series. Yeah. It, feel, it like, feels like a, it feels, you know what it feels like? It feels like a filler episode that nonetheless has a narrative importance to the arc of the show. So, right, right. Such is Ava, right? That even the filler episodes, they have, like, 
it, the episode, I'd say maybe what it is is that the actual plot of the episode feels like filler, but the implications of the plot are quite important, right? Because they, they set up two ideas. One, they set up the idea that as close as Ritsuko and Masato seem, Ritsuko is a treacherous person. Um, and you sort of, you know, again, I would argue that you actually get the hints of this in how Ritsuko and Masato talk about Shinji. Because even though Ritsuko is never like, fuck this kid or anything like that, there's always that sense in which Ritsuko just does not care that Shinji is a a kid who might die. All she cares about is that the Evangelion units exist and they need teenagers to pilot them. But in the Jet Alone episode, you learn that Ritsuko was willing to risk, that Ritsuko and Gendo were willing to risk. Masato's life also that they could sabotage this totally like dispensable robot and it it sort of changes your perspective on Ritsuko a bit even though I think even though like Masato wasn't really was never really really in danger she could have Ritsuko at any point could have been like could have pulled her off to the side and been like yo man hey man like you being extra loud, you being too loud right now. You making too much noise. Sit down next to me. Can't say that after she berated the gentle alone. Yeah, guy. that's true. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Berated. Yeah, that's true. Um, but at the same time, so it's just hard. like at at any time she could have just been like, "Yo, man, just be cool." Damn. Damn. Like, yeah. <laughs> but that's not what happened. So we established that Ritsko has a loyalty to Nerve that is fundamentally different from. Masato's loyalty to Nerve and also feels like it's 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 far more informed. It's far more read in to the actual mission than Masato is. Which brings the second implication of the Jet Alone episode, which is that Nerve sabotaging the Jet Alone ro- robot establishes that Nerve's interest isn't purely, it's not just in defeating the angels, right? It's not in a world where, look, whoever can defeat the angels first, more power to them. Nerve has a specific interest in being the organization that defeats the angels. And Jet alone has fundamentally different like reasons for wanting to fight the angels than Nerve has. And in later episodes, we're going to examine the difference between what Nerve wants to accomplish by defeating the angels Versus what, let's say, the JSSDF or Jet alone might want to accomplish by defeating the angels. You get to the end of this episode. You get to the end of these most recent episodes with this sense of, mm, something don't smell right. Something's not, this is not great. Ritsuko is not great. Gendo is even less great than I thought he was when he was yelling at his son to leave. What's going on with Nerve? What's your impression of Nerve at this point in the series, Micah? Yeah, so I mean, like you, like you begin, like you, you want to root for them despite the fact not that you don't know what Nerve stands for, or you know, like even what it is or why it's there or any of those things. You all you know is Nerve is our last line of defense, is humanity's last line of defense against the angels, and that is the that is functionally all you know at the beginning. And that's all that's ever explained. But by the end of these episodes, you're just like, okay, well, it doesn't seem like defeating the angels is their main priority, but defeating the angels seems to be a means to an end. And you don't know what that end is. 
Um, it's like a different, it's a, it's like a new, it's a whole new like swath of possibilities or like what this could be about has opened up and you have way more questions than you began with. It's super conditional. Um, and as shady as nerve seems because they're always competing with the JSSDF because they sabotaged it alone. Um, in the, in the beginning of the series, I think one of the best things about the beginning of the series and the, the urgency of that first battle with Satchel is that it really does do a good job of papering over a lot of questions that feel like they're questions that get papered over because a show like this requires it. Right. Like, uh, right. I mean, like they, how they much just do you, jump, oh, they ahead. jump directly into everything. I mean, it's just like, this right, is nerve. Like, here's These the things conflict. that are attacking right. are angels. Right. Like, and they, they don't explain any further than any of that because it's just kind of like, this is a, listen, this game time. I don't have time to explain to you what everything is like, put the ball in the hoop and that's it. That's right. And if, and, if, and if anything, the innovation of Shinji Akari as a protagonist is that despite that urgency, Shinji's always asking questions. He's always asking the right questions. He's also being petulant and whiny too, but he's always asking those questions. And, you know, this episode, A Human Work, is when you start to, as the viewer, realize that, oh yeah, you know, sure, somebody has to save humanity from the angels, but why does it need to be nerve? And also, are the Avas the last line of defense against the angels? Like, what? I originally only bought into that premise because that's how the show begins. And the show begins when Tokyo three is under attack. Um, but the more you sit with the premise of the show, the more you realize that there are sort of assumptions that nerve is driving. And a lot of those assumptions seem to be very self-serving and nefarious. So big takeaway from this episode should be nerve is probably not to be trusted the sense that you get from this episode is like a, it's like a, these, this, this uh, batch of episodes is like this strong sense of, does it necessarily need to be true in order to be useful? You also get a sense of like the political, like the fundamentally sort of politically savvy design of nerve, right? This is the first episode where you come away from the end of a human work and that conversation between Gendo and Ritsuko feeling like, oh, Mitch McConnell is running this shit. You know, it's that, it's that <laughs> sense of, oh, wow, this is an organization that has real political muscle oh. and has a real sense of political cons conspiracy behind its motivations. Like at the beginning, you're just like, all right, nerve is good. And then, you know, a couple episodes into it, you're just like, all right, nerve is the lesser of two evils. And, you, and then by the end of a human work, you're just kind of like, well, exactly how many evils are there? Are we sure that Nerve's not the worst one? I should say that the actual very, very end of a human work um, actually takes Shinji back to the apartment with Masato and then to school. And, you know, after, after the, the battle with the Jet Alone robot, um, Shinji's back at school, or he's walking to school with Toji and Kensuke. And it's sort of, the episode ends where it began with with Shinji talking about his home life with Masato. And you have to understand that the kids at the school, the boys at the school, and specifically Toji and Kinsuke, like they've Foaming, seen Masato. They've like, seen Masato, and they've seen her specifically when she's really dressed up fly going into work. And they they adore Masato from afar. They sometimes come by Shinji's apartment 
Uh, and they're always sort of like angling to see if Masato's there because they think she's like hot. <laughs> she's the hot adult. Um, and on the she's way, Stacy's mom, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's not that. That's the thing is she's young enough where this doesn't feel too like pervish. It, it just feels like they all know that Masato is hot shit. Yeah. But meanwhile, Shinji, who actually has to live with Masato, um, and who Kensuke and Toji assumes like, oh, you live with the hot lady. Ah, how's that like? And all Shinji can say is, she's gross. She's sloppy. <laughs> she <laughs> drinks beer for breakfast. Yeah, she just does not have her shit together. Uh, uh, I can't stand the way she... Be- he says something like, I can't stand the way she behaves. And Kensuke and Toji are, are both like, nope, she's hot. Like, stop trying to talk me out of the realization that Masato is hot. And Shinji just seems so frustrated. And at one point, Kensuke just turns to him and says, listen... Here's the difference. Pierces the veil once again. Yeah, Kinsuke with that that like JV emotional insight. Kinsuke, you know, it's like Shinji has had an outburst where he says, "Look, Masato is sloppy. She's ditzy. She's a complete slob. I, I cannot stand watching her around the apartment." And Kinsuke says, "You know, you you see Masato as she really is, not the image that she projects." And so basically, that means you see her as family. And the moment that Kinsuke says that, right, that Shinji sees Masato, as fa- has come to see Masato as family, Shinji smiles and he sort of, he delights in that realization. And you, you see it not just in that moment, but you see it in this episode in just the shots of Masato's apartment, right? It's, it's before when, when Shinji arrived, there was beer cans everywhere. It looked like shit. And now it's not only clean, like it's clean because Shinji lives there and cleans up, but the stuff that you can tell is Masato's touch is she's put things on the refrigerator and she's put up artwork and she's put up notes for Shinji. She's put up all of these touches that have transformed her apartment into what truly feels like a household. There are these tensions, right, in terms of quality of living between Shinji and Masato, but Masato has at least made a real effort to say... I might be messy, but I am willing to put to to put forth the effort to make this place feel like a home for the two of us. Um, and there's, I don't know, there's something really touching in that. But there's also one of the most fascinating things in the show to me uh, is how Masato's apartment is shot. So, for instance, no matter what the state of the apartment is at various points in the show, um, when the characters are in like the living room, for instance. It's always shot horizontally and you're always sort of looking at the characters sitting together and, you know, shot reverse shot at a table or, or standing in the living room, interacting with Pen Pen. But the moment they go into their bedrooms, it's almost always dark, right? So the, the living room and the kitchen, the light's always on. It's always this, 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 uh, it's always shot as this horizontal, even communal space. And their bedrooms are always shot from, like, the ceiling. You're always looking down on the characters in bed, right? Especially in Shinji's room. They're, it becomes iconic after a point that there are all of these shots where Shinji's just in the dark in his small-ass Japanese bedroom, like, listening to music. And there is this very stunning contrast between how the communal area of the apartment looks and how welcoming it begins to look at certain parts of the series. And the fact that it nonetheless feels very different from each of the characters' bedrooms. And even once Masato really 
Masato and Shinji really take great effort to make the living room look like this household, like this welcoming place. Masato's bedroom is still a mess. It's still, there's still more truth in Masato's bedroom than there is in the apartment. And the same is true with Shinji. And the show does like this very interesting job between establishing what their individual bedrooms look like and say about the state of their their soul in any given moment in the show versus this sort of image they create in in their... As soon as they step outside. Right, right. Yeah. It's like they step into the living room and all the lights are on and things are clean and everyone acts cheery. But when they go into those bedrooms, it's just dark and everyone's tired. And yeah, the transition, the transition just from room to room in a single apartment in this show, I think does a lot to illuminate that even Kinsuke is kind of wrong about Masato because Shinji living with Masato, like Masato is even in that family context, she is kind of putting up a front. She's, she's, she's not being a mother so much as she's sort of trying to pantomime how she knows a mother should act. There's an image that she creates in their apartment that's just totally different from the image that you see of Masato once she's alone in her room, in her messy-ass bedroom with her beer cans <laughs> and her expired light bulbs. <laughs> in her mountain of laundry. Yeah. Uh, the thing that we were talking about last episode was just about how, as the show wears on, it would be difficult to ignore the fact that the show, like Hideaki Anno, con- created Neon Genesis Evangelion in the fits of a uh, of, of deep clinical depression. Um, and, I mean, like, there was... He spoke in a 97 interview about Ray, the character, and his connection to her, or lack thereof. He said, Ray is probably the character closest to my deep psyche. I don't really understand her. The truth is I have no emotional attachment to her at all. Which is, I mean, which is hashtag dark shit, to be honest. I mean, like, it's the one that's closest, most closely mirrors himself, and he has no emotional attachment to it. Ray is interesting because she's not just characterized as, she's not characterized as sad, right? I feel like a lot of the, if you were to look at a, an image of Ray, or if you were to look at, like the abundance of Evangelion fan art that depicts Ray. If you look at how a lot of people talk about her, you'd sort of get the sense of her as this sad character. But it's even worse than that. It's she's inscrutable. She's not even sad. There are moments when she should be sad, but she herself is very vacant and blank. And she, like, you know, you're talking about Ano having no commo- emotional connection to her whatsoever. I, sort of the tragedy of Ray is that Ray doesn't have an emotional connection to herself. She's inscrutable to herself. She's a riddle for and about herself. Uh, and I think that's that's what makes Ray really enigmatic upon first contact, right? Well, I mean, the Ray character is uh, kind of a cipher for the, I guess, the aesthetically attractive a kind of one-purpose object of male desire that is present in a lot of different anime. Um, And it's kind of meant to be somewhat of a rejection of that, uh, like like the the nature of that character. Yeah, like you, you said this earlier in the episode about her being, something about her is untouchable. And and that really is it to me. It's she's almost 
undesirable. Not in the sense of she's icky, but in the sense of she, she, she's so disembodied and so vague that it, it really becomes hard to desire her because she feels like, it feels like making her an object of desire is, it's like there's no there there. There's nothing to desire. And everything that she says in response to other people is is just an articulation of a of vacancy. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, she's re- referred to or was, uh, you know, like in the writing around the show about the news items around the show. She was referred to as the premium girl because you yeah. put her on the cover of anything and she sells, you know? Right. Which means that if there was something there um, that that uh, Anna was basically trying to flip on its head, it didn't really work out. Well, either that, but it also, I think to me, suggests the difference between how anime characters are interacted with as anime characters versus as character designs. And it's it's, you know, Ray's vacancy is kind of funny because I think it I think it is logical. I, I think it does logically follow that she's easy to turn into, uh, for lack of a better word, the pinup girl of the franchise, specifically because the character uh, the character relies on that vacancy. It relies on making the character something to be repurposed toward other ends, which is which is her role in the series. Um, but that happening to Ray in the series is very different from that happening to Ray when like fan artists <laughs> are drawing Ray and you know calling Ray their their waifu or something. But it's it's weird because she's so vacant that even in these episodes, Ray 1 and Ray 2, that are named after Ray, even after these very pivotal conversations between her and Shinji, even in these moments where you really you finally get to see Ray tested in the heat of combat, you can still come away from these episodes going like, no, I still don't know what this girl's deal is. I don't know what's going on here. She's still strange. She's prohibitively strange. And maybe you feel better because you've seen her and Shinji finally have a positive interaction, but there's still a lot of, she's still enigmatic. Every, every element of her enigma is preserved even after these episodes. But thankfully we have several episodes. We have lots of episodes to go. Uh, We'll learn more about Ray. We'll meet a new Evangelion pilot. In fact, in the next episode of sound only, which will cover the next how many episodes should we cover in the next episode, Mike? I feel like we we covered five this time, and that that was that nearly killed us. Yeah, no, so. but, but listen, listen, it's like getting in the robot. It nearly killed us, but we <laughs> we must. But we're persist. gonna do it again. We do it again. We're gonna do it again. Oh my god! Um, yeah, I feel like we had a lot of good conversations this episode. We're clustering the episodes together like this, if anything, to sort of get away from doing too much of an episode to like we obviously want to cover the ground of what happens in the episodes but as we as we go forward as we have more characters on the table to talk about as we have more plot developments and character development to talk about uh i think we're going to get away from doing this sort of comprehensive recaps of the episodes and are are going to spend more time in i think thematic exploration character exploration Instead of focusing on pivotal moments in the show and in crucial character development and crucial conversations and stuff like that, because um, I know if some no people are worried. Yeah. And 
if for no other reason than because beat by beat explanations of the episodes are about to get very difficult. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, well, that and also we've established the core rhythms of the show, right? Of the angels yeah. showing up, the pilots having to use problem solving and advanced mathematics to defeat the angels. Um, so yeah, as we get as we're getting more into the rhythm of how a standard Evangelion episode works. Yeah, I think we want to spend more time talking about the nuances of these characters and and of their interactions. Um, And so, yeah, we're going to cover episodes 8 through 14 in the next episode of Sound Only, which will go up later this week. Uh, And again, seems like a lot, but I think think we'll have a good, I think we'll have a good rhythm and a good format uh, for covering these episodes going forward. I like covering them in batches because I really don't want to do straight TV like recap mode um, just because this show has so many relationships and concepts to work through that I, I think people, I think people enjoy that element of talking about Ava. So we are going to be back, back at your head tops again this week. Make sure that you've watched up to episode 14 before you come back to sound only. Or really just watch whatever episode you want. Just know that we're going to cover through episodes 14 on the next episode of Sound Only. That's your spoiler warning. We're spoiling everything from, like, through those episodes, basically. So, yeah, be ready. Yeah. Angel so, attack. So watch up, yeah. to watch up to that far. Watch further. Do, do you. It's your world. Do you. It's your world. I don't care which dub you watch, which sub you watch, Netflix English, original English. Please don't be intimidated by... The conversations about the dubbing of the show, you know, anime fandom is a lot easier once you accept that the only original, the only original language for any of this stuff is Japanese. And if you're watching it in English, you're watching a variation on the original thing. It's on Netflix. I would just watch it on Netflix. I I can't, I can't advocate for piracy on the Ringer Podcast Network. Just watch it on Netflix. It's a good dub. That's my take. I'm standing by that take. It's a good dub. It's a good thing. I'm going to stand by that take until we get to End of Evangelion because I know that they change things. <laughs> At in which show. point we're just going to yeah. clear out a good 15 minutes yeah. for you to yell into the microphone. Yeah, I, then I might get upset. But for now, I, I, I like what I'm hearing. I think it's good so far. But whatever. I mean, people call me a contrarian all the time. That's why I left Twitter. Um, <laughs> uh, why I'm leaving Twitter uh, from the Players' Tribune, Justin Charity. Till next time on Sound Only. I'm your host, Justin Charity. And I'm your other host, Micah Peters. (laughs) Until next time. Thanks for listening. Wow, Shape Show really does look like Kabutops. I wasn't fucking around. I just sort of said that off. You said what? (laughs) You said... You look like Kabutops from Pokemon. Kabutops? Pokemon stole... Ava's whole shit. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> he, said, he said that off rip. He actually does. DMCA have, takedown for this. You know, I mean, Pokemon. <laughs> Get Kabutops out of here. <laughs> it is Kabutops. It's Kabutops. It is Kabutops. Except for the fact that instead of like the two legs, he's got he's got the, the wild eel tail. The wild eel tail. They stole Tentacool then. <laughs> <laughs> Did Pokemon rip off Ava's whole shit? <laughs> Did they steal their whole shit? Every Pokemon is just one of the angels. 
Oh my god! Uh, y'all better hope. I, um, <laughs> Let me find out. Let me find Let out. Let me find oh. out. Woo. Oh my god! 